Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about opening the scriptures. I was going to subtitle this 150th Inappropriate Conversations with something along the lines of freeing Christ from the closet of Christian homophobia, but I think the topic is going to be broader than that. Here I am at the beginning of the recording session looking out over what is going to come as I record, and I can already project this might be the longest inappropriate conversation ever recorded, and it won't necessarily be one that's long because there's a lot of additional sound clips and promos or things of that nature. I've got a lot I want to cover. So in order to support that, I think I want to start by making a quick joke about the saying you see on the internet a lot these days for uh, TLDR, the too long didn't read version of this particular episode. I think I'm going to start with some things that summarize kind of my thoughts right at the beginning. And I'll also tell you that the different drummer segment can be found very close to the very end. So if there are people who simply cannot sustain the length and breadth that I want to cover, how deeply I want to dive into the topic today, that's sort of the shortcut that you can use. And essentially, if I were to speak and kind of frame my thoughts around the idea of Christian homophobia, I think probably the best way to do it is to kind of turn the corner. I put a post up on Facebook, Walk the Earth and Inappropriate Conversations both have Facebook pages. On this one, I've pinned it to the top of Walk the Earth as, at least for the time being, a sort of a permanent setting there. I also shared the same commentary on inappropriate conversations, and at some point, who knows, I might on some of my personal pages as well, because I feel so passionately about it. A lot of it is my response to the love the sinner, hate the sin talk. And I think for too long, I've simply addressed that by gently telling people that that's not in the Bible. It isn't scripture. It isn't what Jesus told us to do. But I keep getting responses from Christians who say, yeah, but I'm going to do it anyway, or it's okay to do this plus what Jesus said. So I've decided that maybe it's time to be a little bit more confrontational, or to do what I'm going to call comprehensively correcting people who talk about love the sin or hate the sin or similar concepts, and tell them what actually is biblical. What does the Bible say? So here are some directives that are individually and in combination with each other very different from what I would describe as the condescending notion of loving others in spite of their sinfulness. That uh, looking down the nose type of love. The thing that C.S. Lewis would have derided as merely pride. So here's a few concepts. Love one another even as I have loved you. The words of Jesus. John 15, verse 12. Examine yourself. The words of Paul. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28. If you judge someone else's sin, you condemn yourself, both Jesus and Paul. From Jesus, it's Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. And from Paul, it's Romans chapter 2, verse 1. And finally, always share the hope you have in Christ, but do so gently and with respect. Those are the words of Peter from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Actually, parts of those two verses. So, this section says... What does Jesus really say about love? It's not love the sin or hate the sin. It's simply love one another, even as I have loved you. 
which should draw us into taking a look at exactly how did Jesus love people during the accounts we have recorded in the New Testament of his earthly walk. I think we're going to find Jesus spending a lot of time with people that modern Christians say we should not spend any time with at all. Paul answers the question of this, you know, this hate the sin idea. Well, what are we supposed to do with sin? If we're not supposed to hate the sin in others, Paul makes it really simple. Examine yourself. He even goes so far as to say the people who do not examine their own sin prior to putting on airs and participating fully in worship and going through communion and acting as if they've got it all together might actually face uh, serious, serious judgment in this lifetime, not just in the afterlife. Examine yourself is what Paul has to say about it. And then this notion of judgment. We hear a lot of talk about, well, judge, judge not lest ye be judged. Here's what Jesus really meant by that. He meant judge by the right standard, use the right kind of judgment. And I think that's probably not fully accurate because I think what Jesus would say is the wrong kind of judgment is anything that focuses elsewhere rather than inwardly. Paul put it best. If you judge someone else's sin, you condemn yourself. And he's echoing the words of Jesus. Not just the words you know, recorded, but perhaps the words he heard from Jesus on the road to Damascus. We'll get to that story in a little bit. Finally, what are we supposed to do then? If we're not supposed to judge others, if the examination of, of sin and rooting out sin is an inward thing, we're examining ourselves and not spending our time examining others, if love is much more simple and therefore much more profound than modern Christianity tells us it is, if it's just as simple as that, love one another, done talking, love one another, then what are we supposed to do? Christians who want to reach out, Christians who want to engage the world. I've made a lot of statements here from Scripture that suggest that they should focus inwardly first and foremost, get their house in order first. But when they do look outwardly, I think Peter gives us the really great direction, the direction that we should follow. It says, always share the hope that you have in Christ. Always do it, but do so gently and with respect. If you're not sharing the gospel, if you're not talking about your relationship with Jesus in a way that is gentle, that is respectful of others, that is concerned about their feelings and how you might be perceived, how you might be coming off, if you're not aware of that, then just keep it to yourself. This isn't me saying it as Greg. This is Peter, the apostle, the rock upon whom Jesus said he was going to build his church. So that's the too long didn't read intro. But what I'm going to do the rest of the way here is deal with a lot more scripture, a lot more aggressively, and perhaps a lot more directly. What I'm going to do is deal with scripture at length. Now, the reason I do this is that people like me, it's not just me. In fact, I'm going to share a quote from a pastor in Kansas City in just a moment who faces the same challenge. We often get told that we are selective, that we are picking and choosing from Scripture. And ironically, when it comes to questions about sexual orientation, we get this statement made to us by people who sometimes act as if they think the Bible only has six or seven verses in it. So I'm going to cover a lot more ground than six or seven verses. I'm going to do so from the entire Bible, but as you might imagine from things I've written in the past at uh, www.inappropriateconversations.org, there's a tab up front that has a, the very header that has Christianity on it. It really is the link to the article Christianity 201, Time for Solid Food. And there's also an about page for inappropriate conversations and an about page for Walk the Earth, but that's actually a, a very long essay. I'm going to refer to some of that same scripture from there again and, and maybe cover some familiar ground. I also know that when I get to the end of the scripture that I'm going to walk through today, 
that there's going to be a reference back to even a show as recently as Inappropriate Conversations 146, The Idea of Christ. And I've spent some time here getting ready for episode 150, trying to get my head around the idea of repetition. I was sitting in church the other day and listening to not just the sermon, but also carefully paying attention to the scripture reading. And I realized that it's highly unlikely that I'm ever going to hear a scripture reading in church that I haven't read before, because I believe in one manner or another, I've read the Bible through more than once. And it's possible that maybe there would be a Sunday where I would hear a scripture that I've never heard used as the scripture reading in a worship service before. I haven't lived that long, but, you know, several decades and enough time that, that even that seems unlikely. And what it means is that I'm hearing some of the stories again. This concept in the old hymn, I love to tell the story, has a line in it about the people who know the story best still wanting to hear it again, still wanting to hear it with the others and perhaps even from the others, that there's a repetition in the way we handle scripture. So I hope a lot of this show actually on some level sounds familiar. I'm okay if it does, but I'm not willing to take the chance that skipping some of the repetition is going to be the right move. I'd rather repeat myself, I guess, than leave some of the words unspoken. Because I'm not going to pick and choose. I'm not going to build a selective case. I'm going to read at length from numerous scriptures. I'm going to put those scriptures into the context, not just the the magic verse. And I'm going to talk a little bit about how they connect with each other. I'll find parallel passages between the Gospels. I'll jump in some cases to the reference points where authors in the New Testament are referring to Old Testament scriptures, and I'll jump to the Old Testament scriptures and tick and tie that out. I want to make sure that I leave nothing left unsaid. And the reason for that is that I believe that I have what some people call a high view of scripture. Unfortunately, the people who use that phrase most often use that phrase to suggest that you only have a high view of scripture if you're still deeply mired in legalism. The argument that you tend to hear, the argument that Pastor Adam Hamilton from Kansas City had heard about his view of Scripture, that it wasn't a high view of Scripture because it wasn't, it wasn't married to every single verse, as if the verses themselves were some sort of, I don't know, magic potion in Walk the Earth 18, released most recent to this episode. I talk a little bit about that line between faith and superstition, and so often Christians use Bible verses as if there's some sort of an incantation, rather than it's actually what it really is a story being told to us unfolding across a great period of time. Here's what Hamilton says about this notion of a high view of Scripture in his recently released book called Making Sense of the Bible. He says this, Someone with a high view of Scripture actually reads the Bible, listens for God to speak through it, seeks to be shaped by its words, and tries to follow its commands. His argument is that a lot of times he gets pushback from people who claim they have a high view of Scripture, but haven't paid any attention to it at all. They believe it says stuff like God helps those who helps themselves, or God wants us to love the sinner but hate the sin. All of these sort of misquotes don't reflect a high view of Scripture. They reflect somebody who hasn't read the text at all. This morning, on the day I am recording, I put a quick tweet out there just to sort of set my mind on the right path, and without looking it up to quote it exactly, I'll just paraphrase. It it essentially says that if you believe that the infallible word of God is the Bible, You haven't read the Bible, or you haven't read it very well, or you need to read it again. Because what the Bible says the infallible word of God is, is Jesus. It's the Christ. And to put that kind of infallibility, that kind of high view, into anything other than Christ himself, borders on blasphemy. 
So when I return from a quick break here, I'm going to dive in to some notes that I took while I was on a cruise to Alaska, sitting in a lounge area, looking out through a big window as the ship passed slowly through Glacier Bay. And with my phone in my hand and the notepad you know, application open, I began to just get this sort of inspiration that maybe it was time that I made a manifesto of sorts. That I'm not going to speak from a manifesto of, po- of politics. That's The politics side of inappropriate conversations is unlikely to get some sweeping broad statement of intent. And on the um, pop culture side, it could happen. I wouldn't rule it out. But it's unlikely, because I, I want to have a very open mind about all things related to arts and culture. In the area of human sexuality, there's a lot of things I just need to keep to myself, because my most important relationships are kind of built along that sort of sense of privacy, and I don't want to violate that sense of privacy. But I will, today, kind of open up some thoughts in a manifesto of sorts related to this concept of what the Bible actually says. And the inspiration came to me while looking at one of the great beauties in nature, at least in the American topographical and oceanic landscape. So if you take that as the inspiration, the intent here, though, is to answer once and for all why it is that I feel that I'm not just an Orthodox Christian, but a very Orthodox Christian. And although I might not fit the bill of quote-unquote conservative Christianity from the perspective of the religious right, I certainly fit the bill when it comes to being conservative with regards to Scripture, because most of what I'm going to share the rest of the way is scripture, and it's scripture that my high-minded view of is so high that I've actually not only chose to read it, but I'm choosing to share it, and I'm not choosing to share it with select chapters and verses. I'm choosing to share it at length. Hi, Russell. Are you like mommy? Are you doing a podcast? A podcast. Podcast. Good boy. That is pretty much the cutest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Podcast. Anomaly. Something that deviates from what is standard, normal, or expected. An oddity. Peculiarity. Irregularity. Inconsistency. Incongruity. A rarity. I'm Jen. And I'm Angela. And we're the socially functional co-hosts of Anomaly. The podcast with a unique perspective, a female perspective on all things geek. Star Trek. Star Wars. Lord of the Rings. Buffy. Firefly. Gaming. Books. Costuming. And general geek topics. The sometimes monthly, but always entertaining, Anomaly Podcast. Anomalypodcast.com. I had to overcome the temptation not to make this the focus of the 150th show. Mainly it was because many of these words I've shared before, some in parts of podcasts, some in blog posts, some in articles on the website, the one I mentioned earlier, inappropriateconversations.org. But sometimes repetition is really a good idea. Sometimes repetition is absolutely a necessity. Many times I've shared a word of scripture with people that I know they have heard, they have heard and read many times only to see the light bulb come on over their heads, maybe for the first time, or maybe for the first time in a long time. Context. Perspective. Repetition. Sometimes it is valuable to restate and review. Consider the story of Paul visiting Berea. Some learn by reading, others learn by hearing, and yet others learn by some of the both of those in combination with each other. It's also a bit about 
taking the time to quote at length, to speak in context, and to identify parallels. Too many Christians today treat the Bible not as a story or even as merely scripture, nor they treat it like a book of spells. Put the magic words together and you have the power to cast people into hell. Eh? Right? Jesus saw it differently. So did Paul. And so has almost every good theologian since. From Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 12, here's what I mean. As soon as night came, the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. When they arrived, they went to the synagogue. The people there were more open-minded than the people in Thessalonica. They listened to the message with great eagerness, and every day they studied the scriptures to see if what Paul said was really true. Many of them believed, and many Greek women of high social standing, and many Greek men also believed. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, through chapter 6, verse 3, says, In his life on earth, Jesus made his prayers and requests with loud cries and tears to God, who could save him from death. Because he was humble and devoted, God heard him. But even though he was God's son, he learned through his sufferings to be obedient. When he was made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. And God declared him to be high priest in the priestly order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, it's interesting to note, was viewed as a high priest before the time of Joseph, before the tribes of Israel, before one of those tribes was set aside as a Levitical order. So this is a high priest before there were high priests. Back to Hebrews. There is much we have to say in this matter, but it is hard to explain to you because you are so slow to understand. There has been enough time for you to be teachers, yet you still need someone to teach you the first lessons of God's message. Instead of eating solid food, you still have to drink milk. Anyone who has to drink milk is still a child, without any experience in the matter of right and wrong. Solid food, on the other hand, is for adults, who through practice are able to distinguish between good and evil. Note how Paul takes the concept of right and wrong as being simple and childish, and the concept of dealing with good and evil being a far more complex idea, and he is telling the Christians of his time, and I would join him in telling many of the Christians of our time, that you are not even equipped to speak intelligently about right and wrong, much less good and evil. Picking up with chapter 6, let us go forward then to mature teaching and leave behind us the first lessons of the Christian message. We should not lay again the foundation of turning away from useless works and believing in God, of the teaching of baptisms, and the laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and the eternal judgment, let us go forward. And this is what we will do if God allows. Notice how the denominational differences that cause infighting. If you got together every Christian denomination, including Roman Catholicism, hey, just in America, just pull together some Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterians, and Catholics, and get them in a room together. And if they decide to argue about their differences instead of focus upon the shared blessings that they've experienced through Jesus Christ, what would those differences be about? I suggest to you that those differences would be about the subtle interpretations of the principles that were laid out right here by the author of the letter to the Hebrews. It would be over stuff about baptism and healing and um, resurrection and judgment and hell and heaven. And it would be all those sort of things. Let's move forward from this. These ideas are foundational. They shouldn't, there shouldn't be cracks in our foundation. We shouldn't be focusing on relaying the foundation.
I've shared this one before, in the intro to a passage when I was going to share a lot about my theological views, and I'll do it again here. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 3, verse 11. It's taking the piece that I've shared in the past and broadening its context. Again, consistent with the theme of this show, talking about these things at length, opening up these scriptures to what they really and truly say, inside the context that some of the passages you've heard before were written, but also in conjunction with one another. Here's Paul's letter, first letter to the Corinthians. It is only our own spirit within us that knows all about us. In the same way, only God's spirit knows all about God. We have not received this world spirit. Instead, we have received the spirit sent by God, so that we may know all that God has given us. So then, we do not speak in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, as we explain spiritual truths to those who have the spirit. Whoever does not have the Spirit cannot receive the gifts that come from God's Spirit. Such a person really does not understand them, and they seem to be nonsense, because their value can be judged only on a spiritual basis. Whoever has the Spirit, however, is able to judge the value of everything, but no one is able to judge him. As Scripture says, who knows the mind of the Lord? Who is able to give him advice? We, however, have the mind of Christ." As a matter of fact, my friends, I could not talk to you as I talk to people who have the Spirit. I had to talk to you as though you belonged to this world, as children in the Christian faith. I had to feed you milk, not solid food, because you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not ready for it, because you still live as the people of this world live. When there is jealousy among you and you quarrel with one another, doesn't this prove that you belong to this world, living by its standards? When one of you says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, aren't you acting like worldly people? After all, who is Apollos, and who is Paul? We are simply God's servants, by whom you were led to believe. Each one of us does the work which the Lord gave him to do. I planted the seed. Apollos watered the plant. But it was God who made the plant grow. The one who plants, and the one who waters, really do not matter. It is God who matters, because he makes the plant grow. There is no difference between the one who plants and the one who waters. God will reward each one according to the work each has done. For we are partners, working together for God, and you are God's field. You are also God's building. Using the gift that God gave me, I did the work of an expert builder and laid the foundation, and someone else is building on it. But each one of you must be careful how you build. For God has already placed Jesus Christ as the one and only foundation, and no other foundation can be laid. In the Walk the Earth podcast, which shares this same feed, can also be found at inappropriateconversations.org, both of which actually are available on Stitcher at stitcher.com for those who listen to podcasts on the go. The Walk the Earth podcast really came about, it was initiated by my decision to leave a church over exactly this kind of petty jealousy and infighting that Paul describes right at the beginning of his first of two letters to the church in Corinth, letting them know that in his mind they were still children, they were still not ready for solid food. And I was interacting then, still am now, via Facebook and other means, with Christians from that church, where I engaged in active ministry for 15 plus years, who I would still say now must be given milk and not solid food. Because if you look at what they believe they're called to do in relationship to people who have a different sexual orientation or in a different economic condition, it's clear that they do not have the heart of Christ. They have not been able to comprehend what Jesus 
told them to do. And I think you'll see that if you think in terms of the religious right mentality that we see so often on TV, from televangelists in particular, as I read through some of the scriptures that tell us where Christ's heart was, we're going to find a big gap between what Jesus says to do and what those who claim to love him most say we should do. Finally, as I work through some introductory material here, I want to talk about this concept of how do you change from being someone who needs milk and not solid food to someone who is actually mature enough. And I think we often hear Paul describing it with the phrase, renewing your mind. This is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. So then, my friends, because of God's great mercy to us, I appeal to you, offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God, dedicated to his service and pleasing to him. This is the true worship you should offer. Do not conform yourself to the standard of this world, but let God transform you inwardly by a complete change of your mind. Then you will be able to know the will of God, what is good and is pleasing to him and is perfect. And because of God's gracious gift to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you should. Instead, be modest in your thinking and judge yourself according to the amount of faith that God has given you. We have many parts in the one body, and all these parts have different functions. In the same way, though we are many, we are one body in union with Christ, and we are all joined to each other as different parts of one body. So we are to use our different gifts in accordance with the grace that God has given us. If our gift is to speak God's message, we should do it according with the faith we have. I rarely pray on inappropriate conversation shows. I always do on Walk the Earth. But this was the point when I was taking notes, kind of praying on a cruise ship, you know, uh, off the coast of Alaska, where it seemed to me that I probably should stop. And at the very least, pray the words that you find in Psalms 19, verse 14. Lord my God, may the words and my thoughts be acceptable to you, for you are my refuge and my redeemer. Lord, these are, these, these are your words. Help me to share your words, your way, on this day. Amen. I've talked a little bit about the the nature of this show and the fact that it's going to be a very long one. And one of the things I'm not going to do, though, I've, I've still cut some corners. There are three chapters in Matthew's Gospel that I believe need to be shared and need to be read aloud a lot more often than they are today. And I refer to them regularly on the show. I feel that passionately about them. The Sermon on the Mount can be found in Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7. But based on the other material I want to cover today, I'm not going to read those in their entirety. I'm going to get to other passages in their entirety. Instead, to provide some context for one of the core beliefs that I've got, and one of the core mistakes I think you find in a lot of modern Christianity, I am going to read from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 24. All the other verses I've shared today will be the good news translation, 
but this one I want to share from the New American Standard Bible. I have some issues with this translation, particularly with the way this translation has handled some of the passages in the Torah. But it doesn't do a terrible job in the Gospels, and it is one of the very best word-for-word translations. So where political influence hasn't led mistakes to be made in the rendering of the text, between the version uh, of the NASB in 1971 versus the one that came out in a very uh, with a lot of mistakes in it in 1995, this one I think is consistent in either one of those. And again, being a word-for-word translation seems like the best way to go here. With the Sermon on the Mount, picking up a section of Matthew chapter five. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments, and teaches others to do the same, shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, He shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable before going to court. Whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be called guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into a fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar, and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. These are the words of Jesus, and unfortunately words that people have confused over the years. For Jesus uses expressions, both here in the Sermon on the Mount, And later in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 24, in the section called the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus talks about the end of all things, using expressions and phrases like, until heaven and earth pass away. The Jews of the time would have realized that he was talking about what we would describe now as the Jewish age, but Christians coming along, oh, about 1,850 years later, got it completely confused and thought that Jesus was talking about the destruction of the universe. You'll note, though, here, that Paul was not confused. Paul consistently tells people there are parts of the law that do not need to be abided by. Significant parts. In fact, he refers to the entire Jewish law as having gone away. Jesus, on numerous occasions, found himself in trouble with the Pharisees, and it's, it's a traditional evangelical Christian trope to say that when Jesus was violating those laws, he wasn't really violating those laws, because those laws are sacred and sacrosanct and can't be violated ever. Um, Judas, Jesus was talking about the real law as opposed to what the Pharisees were putting together as the fake laws, but I don't think so. When Jesus was healing during the Sabbath, there's no question about what the Sabbath was, and there's no question about what the Old Testament says about working on the Sabbath. Jesus was talking about laws not being as important 
as people. This line between what does it mean to be faithful in terms of holiness, keeping myself pure and clean for the hope of going to heaven, or what does it mean to be faithful in the sense of compassion? That Jesus never put rules above people. And we're going to find out as we get through this particular inappropriate conversation, manifesto of sorts, that the scriptures bear this out loudly and clearly. But first, let me just focus in on one simple phrase. Again, a phrase that many Christians find confusing. Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And that nothing would go away until everything was accomplished, until everything was finished. He used words like fulfill and accomplish. What do we mean by this? How will we know that Jesus completed his mission? Well, John 19, verses 28 through 30, I believe gives us the answer. Jesus knew that by now everything had been completed. And in order to make the scripture come true, he said, I am thirsty. A bowl was there full of cheap wine. So a sponge was soaked in the wine, put on a stalk of hyssop, and lifted up to his lips. Jesus drank the wine and said, It is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Tetelestai. It is finished. All is accomplished. The debt is paid. Stick a fork in it. This is the end. All is done. Finished. Tetelestai. Some Christians openly suggest that all is not finished. That Jesus didn't accomplish what he set out to accomplish. At least not yet. The debt may have been paid in principle, but that check might still bounce. Hold on to your fork. Have it ready, but don't stick it anywhere just yet. Some even question whether Jesus is the chosen one, or if that term refers to something else. All of these Tim LaHaye-style, left-behind-gospel-type people seem to think that the sacrifice that Jesus made was not really going to be sufficient, that for his interpretation of the book of Revelations and other passages in the apocalyptic writings of Scripture, for his interpretation, the LaHaye version, to come true, Israel has to become a state again, it has to become a Jewish religious state again, it has to be unified where there's no outsiders living in Jerusalem, and the temple has to be rebuilt, and more sacrifices have to be made because Jesus Christ just wasn't good enough. Now, Lehi wouldn't word it that way, but who are we kidding? That's what he meant. Some even question whether Jesus is the chosen one at all. Maybe it's the Jews, or the nation of Israel. Maybe it's another nation, a Christian nation as they tend to describe the United States of America. But it just doesn't mean the Messiah. It doesn't mean Jesus Christ. This begs the question, though. Who is Abraham's seed, as the saying go? Who is his descendant? What is it that links everything the Old Testament says with New Testament, with the theology presented to us by many people, including the Apostle Paul? Paul sums it up pretty well. In the letter to Galatians chapter 3, I want to start with verses 6 through 18, because it helps us answer this question, who is Abraham's seed? Who is the descendant? Consider the experience of Abraham, Paul writes. As the scripture says, he believed God, and because of his faith, God accepted him as righteous. You should realize then that the descendants, the real descendants of Abraham, are the people who have faith. The scripture predicted that God would put the Gentiles right with himself, through faith. And so the scripture announced the good news to Abraham. Through you, God will bless all people. Abraham believed and was blessed, 
and so all who believe are blessed as he was. Those who depend on obeying the law live under a curse. For the scripture says, Whoever does not always obey everything that is written in the book of the law is under God's curse. Everything that is written in the book of God's law is under a curse. Now it is clear that no one is put right with God by means of the law, because the scripture says, Only the person who is put right with God through faith shall live. But the law has nothing to do with faith. Instead, as the scripture says, whoever does everything the law requires shall live. But by becoming a curse for us, Christ has redeemed us from the curse the law brings. For the scripture says, anyone who is hanged on a tree is under God's curse. Christ did this in order that the blessing which God promised to Abraham might be given to the Gentiles by means of Christ Jesus, so that through faith we might receive the spirit promised by God. My friends, I am going to use an everyday example. When two people agree on a matter and sign an agreement, no one can break it or add anything to it. Now, God made his promises to Abraham and to his descendant. The scripture does not say the plural descendants, meaning many people, but the singular descendant, meaning only one, namely Christ. What I mean is that God has made a covenant with Abraham and promised to keep it. The law, which was given 430 years later, cannot break that covenant and cancel God's promise. For if God's gift depends upon the law, then it no longer depends upon his promise. However, it was because of his promise that God gave the gift to Abraham. Galatians chapter 3, verses 6-18, through 18, making clear that the descendant, the seed, Abraham's seed, is Jesus. It's the Christ. It's the Messiah. There are no more chosen people. The chosen person was Jesus. And those who have faith in Jesus have accomplished associating ourselves with him and taking advantage of this chosenness. Jumping further down to Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. But before the time for faith came, the law kept us all locked up as prisoners until this coming faith should be revealed. And so the law was in charge of us until Christ came in order that we might be put right with God through faith. Now, now that the time for faith is here, the law is no longer in charge of us. It is through faith that all of you are God's children, in union with Christ Jesus. You were baptized into union with Christ, and now you are clothed, so to speak, with the life of Christ himself. So there is no difference between Jew and Gentiles, between slaves and free people, between men and women. You are all one in union with Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are the descendants of Abraham, and will receive what God has promised. What Paul is saying here is, what I've been saying all along, and what I often get accused of saying selectively, misreading, twisting the scriptures. I don't know, I'm twisting them just about as much as the Apostle Paul did. Christ fulfilled the law. The law is gone. Christ has superseded the law. He's abolished it. All is accomplished. His work is finished. Heaven and earth did not pass away prior to the point in time when Jesus Christ fulfilled everything. He came to earth to do. And if you're hanging on to those laws, if those Old Testament laws somehow supersede anything Jesus commanded us, or have some equal importance with what Jesus did, then maybe you're thinking that Jesus didn't accomplish what Paul and Peter and James and all the rest of the apostles saw with their own two eyes and know he accomplished. James provides us a parallel passage in the one letter in the New Testament we have 
from that author. Paul talks about this notion of all the law. Here's what James says about it. Chapter 2, starting with verse 8. You will be doing the right thing if you obey the law of the kingdom, which is found in Scripture. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. But if you treat people according to their outward appearance, you are guilty of sin, and the law condemns you as a lawbreaker. Whoever breaks one commandment is guilty of breaking them all. For the same one who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. And even if you do not commit adultery, you become a lawbreaker if you commit murder. Speak and act as people who will be judged by the law that sets us free. For God will not show mercy when he judges the person who has not been merciful. But mercy triumphs over judgment. There's another parallel passage from Paul's letter to the Romans. I'm going to revisit this particular chapter a little bit later, but I want to focus on how it ties in, not just with what Paul told the church in Galatia and what James wrote, but it kind of kind of triangulates the notion. Here in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, Be under obligation to no one. The only obligation you have is to love one another. Whoever does this has obeyed the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not commit murder, do not steal, do not desire what belongs to someone else. All these and any others besides are summed up in one command. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you love others, you will never do them wrong. To love, then, is to obey the whole law. So here we have James saying that you'll be doing the right thing if you love your neighbor as you love yourself. And Paul saying that loving your neighbor as you love yourself is obeying the whole law. Even if you're loving your neighbor by healing them on the Sabbath? Jesus said, yes, I'm going to heal people who were hurt on the Sabbath, because that is loving them. And loving them fulfills all of the law. Regardless of what the Ten Commandments say about honoring the Sabbath and keeping it holy, Jesus told the Pharisees, he says, I, I know your hearts. If you have a donkey that has fallen into a well, you're going to get it out on the Sabbath day. You're not going to leave it there to die. You're certainly not going to leave it there to wail and moan for the entire afternoon long. You're going to do something about it. And this is people he felt didn't have much love in their heart to begin with. Well, how strongly did Paul feel about this notion that the law was gone and that Christ had set us free? Did he feel so strongly about it? that he might confront a group of people and actually dare them to castrate themselves to publicly announce that their commitment was still to the law? Well, let's find out. Returning back to the book of Galatians, chapter 5, reading uh, from 1 through 15, those verses. Here's Paul. Freedom is what we have. Christ has set us free. Stand then as free people and do not allow yourselves to become slaves again. Listen. I, Paul, tell you that if you allow yourselves to be circumcised, it means that Christ is of no use to you at all. Once more, I warn that any man who allows himself to be circumcised, as he is obliged to obey the whole law. Those of you who try to be put right with God by obeying the law have cut yourselves off from Christ. You are outside God's grace. As for us, our hope is that God will put us right through him. And this is what we wait for by the power of God's Spirit working through our faith. For we are in union with Christ Jesus. Neither circumcision nor lack of it makes any difference at all. What matters is faith that works through love. You were doing so well. Who made you stop obeying the truth? How did he persuade you? It was not done by God who calls you. It only takes a little yeast to make the whole batch of dough rise, as they say. But I still feel confident about you. 
Our life in union with the Lord makes me confident that you will not take a different view, and that whoever is upsetting you will be punished by God. But as for me, my friends, if I continue to preach that circumcision is necessary, why am I still being persecuted? If that were true, then my preaching about the cross of Christ would be no trouble. I wish that the people who are upsetting you would go all the way. Let them go on and castrate themselves. As for you, my friends, you were called to be free. But do not let this freedom become an excuse for letting your physical desires control you. Instead, let love make you serve one another. For the whole law is summed up in one commandment. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. But if you act like wild animals, hurting and harming each other, then watch out, or you will completely destroy one another. So here is Paul, over and over again, saying that loving your neighbor as you love yourself fulfills all of the law. It's the whole of the law. It is it in its entirety. And yet when I tell people this, even people with whom I have a great faith relationship, pastors, for example, they express a worry that, oh, you know, all this love talk, what's all that about? Well, you know, it's about Jesus. It's about Paul. It's about James. It's about Peter. It's about Luke. That's what the love talk is all about. But I've heard, you know, recently, a pastor friend of mine from Cleveland say, you know, one of the real risks is that if you're talking too much about, you know, the whole of the law being summed up through love, what do you do then in terms of maintaining some sort of order in society? What do you do to, to set some sort of sexual standards? How do you avoid some of the problems we have in our society with some of the issues related to becoming a little bit unmoored from those Old Testament ideas? And what I would suggest is that those Old Testament ideas were inevitably going to be rejected by modern society. Jesus knew this more than 2,000 years ago and gave us a couple of commandments he wanted us to use as our anchor instead that would help and guide us and make sure that we wouldn't be exploiting people, taking advantage of them, um, doing some of the other things which are clearly wrong, um, sexual crime, sexual violence, and ripping families apart. Well, I strongly reject the notion of the religious right, that love means we have to hate certain things, or even certain people, or do hateful things that they would certainly feel were hateful, whether we say they're hate or not. No. But love is a much more complex concept than simply, hey, if it feels good, do it. Love talks in terms of doing things that make a sacrifice on behalf of each other, that serve one another. And Paul cages this notion of letting love make you serve one another, with the opposite idea of making sure that you don't just become wild animals hurting and harming each other by going out and getting what's yours. So how does Jesus describe this kind of love? This love that might be put under the heading of love that serves one another. Because Paul never gets far away from what Jesus taught. Jesus teaches us in a passage that ironically gets referred to by scholars as the Great Judgment. Matthew chapter 25 Verse 31 to 46. This is Jesus speaking. When the Son of Man comes as King, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his royal throne, and all the people of all the nations will be gathered before him. Then he will divide them into two groups, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the righteous people at his right, and the others at his left. Then the King will say to the people on his right, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, Come and possess the kingdom which has been prepared for you ever since the creation of the world. I was hungry, and you fed me. Thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you received me in your homes. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. 
in prison, and you visited me. The righteous will then answer him, When, Lord, did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we ever see you a stranger and welcome you in our homes, or naked and clothe you? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? The king will reply, I tell you, whenever you did it for one of the least important of these followers of mine, you did it for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Away from me, you that are under God's curse. Away to the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry, but you would not feed me. Thirsty, but you would not give me a drink. I was a stranger, but you would not welcome me in your homes. Naked, but you would not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, but you would not take care of me. Then they will answer him. When, Lord, did we ever see you? Hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison, and we would not help you. The king will reply, I tell you, whenever you refuse to help one of the least important ones, you refused to help me. These then will be sent off to eternal punishment, but the righteous will go to eternal life. This is what Jesus says about loving one another, loving one another in a way that means serving one another. And just to stop and pause for a moment here, I have talked about this concept that Jesus gave to us, of these commandments of loving God and neighbor as being, first off, the replacement for the law, second off, the fulfillment of the law, third, the rest of the law has been wiped away by what Christ accomplished on the cross. And I hear people tell me from time to time that I'm selectively reading scripture. Well, I've shared what Paul said, but some people say, well, that's just one passage of Paul. No, Paul says it repeatedly. Paul says it in conjunction with things that James say. They're consistent with each other. And the concept that he offered in the book of Galatians chapter 5, for example, consistent with what Jesus said in the passage that we know is the great judgment. We will be, as Christians, judged by how well we took care of the sick, the homeless, the hungry, the thirsty, the needy, the prisoner. That's the standard. And when you look at the state of modern Christianity today, I hear more arguments from people on the religious right about how we shouldn't be spending any time or energy on people like those sick people, those homeless people, those hungry people, those underemployed people, those unemployed people, those economically disadvantaged people, those immigrants, those strangers that it, it shocks the sensibility to wonder how they could possibly be reading the same Bible that I read and how they could speak, have the temerity to speak about their own point of view being some kind of a high-minded understanding of Scripture. If you have a high understanding of Scripture, if you think it's perfect and flawless, if it's the infallible Word of God that has no contradictions and gives us the final answer for everything that we face as humans living in this life, if following what the Word of God says to the letter is one of the key ways of satisfying the requirements of the righteousness of God for entry at one point into the kingdom of heaven, to hear the words from Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, it's the stuff I've just been sharing that we've got to do. And it's the stuff I've just been sharing that we so consistently fail to do. No passage in John's Gospel is quoted more by both sides on questions related to capital punishment or abortion or even homosexuality here in the last four or five years. It keeps cro cropping up. 
is one of the passages that is viewed by scholars as being maybe the last section to make it into John's Gospel. There are versions in some of the ancient texts that do not include the first 11 chapters of John 8. But here are those chapters, and I think most people will recognize them almost immediately. They're, they're well known. Then everyone went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early the next morning, he went back to the temple. All the people gathered around him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The teachers of the law and Pharisees brought in a woman who had been caught committing adultery, and they made her stand before them all. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. In our law, Moses commanded that such a woman must be stoned to death. Now, what do you say? They said this to trap Jesus so that they could accuse him. But he bent over and wrote on the ground with his finger. As they stood there, asking him questions, he straightened up and said to them, Whichever one of you has committed no sin may throw the first stone at her. Then he bent over again and wrote on the ground. When they heard this, they all left, one by one, the older ones first. Jesus was left alone with the woman still standing there. He straightened up and said to her, Where are they? Is there no one left to condemn you? No one, sir, she answered. Well then, Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, but do not sin again. This notion of go and sin no more has been used by many people. The, the last section of the last part of the 11th verse, not even a verse in and of itself, has been viewed by many people to trump the lesson that Jesus was teaching throughout the entire rest of the passage. Jesus is telling us the kind of judgment that he's looking for, judgment that shows compassion for those people who've made mistakes. But when you have conversations with people about women who've had abortions or people who are engaged in, in homosexual relations, people who have um, homosexual orientation, you hear this talk about the only thing that matters in all of John chapter 8. In fact, sometimes you'd swear the only thing that matters in the entire gospel of John is this notion of go and sin no more. I'm going to come later to some sections which talk about situations where Jesus didn't always say, go and sin no more. We act as if that's how he always handled things. In fact, you encounter people from time to time who misread scripture by adding that verse almost every time Jesus encounters somebody who's being accused by someone else. We'll get to it as we go. But there's no doubt this is one passage where Jesus makes the recommendation that you've been set up, young woman. You've been trapped by a group of Pharisees who may have actually been engaged in setting up the situation where you were lured into an act of adultery because the Pharisees show up before Jesus with only one of the two people that Mosaic law might suggest gets stoned to death. The other one was completely missing. That in and of itself raises a lot of suspicion. So if nothing else, he's telling her, don't be a fool. Don't get fooled again. But Jesus actually gave a much more affirmative answer to the concept of what it is we're supposed to do. So even in this John chapter 8 passage, Jesus is still telling us what we're not supposed to do. We're not supposed to use the law at the expense of compassion. We're not supposed to judge in a hypocritical way. But what does he say we should do instead? We find this in what I may consider to be the single most well-known passage in all of the Gospels. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37, better known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. But the most important concepts actually come before the parable, starting with verse 25. A teacher of the law came up and tried to trap Jesus. 
Teacher, he asked, what must I do to receive eternal life? Jesus answered him, what do the scriptures say? How do you interpret them? You know, Jesus thinks he's about to be trapped when he answers a question with a question, when he turns the onus back on the person who is trying to uh, set a snare. The man answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. You are right, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Note, the teacher of the law has asked Jesus a question of what he has to do to receive eternal life. We can debate whether that that phrase, receive eternal life, means get to heaven, or whether it means be part of the kingdom of God that's here among us now. We can argue about whatever it means, but it's clearly something that was very important, both to the teacher of the law and to Jesus, and Jesus tells him, loving God and loving your neighbor is what you need to do. Not that plus anything else. Do this, Jesus says, and you will live. Period. Full stop. Simple as that. Nothing more. But the teacher of the law, picking up verse 29, wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus answered, There once was a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, when robbers attacked him, stripped him, and beat him up, leaving him half dead. It so happened that a priest was going down that road, but when he saw the man, he walked by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite also came there, went over and looked at the man, and then walked on by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was traveling that way came upon the man, and when he saw him, his heart was filled with pity. He went over to him, poured oil and wine on his wounds, and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own animal and took him to an inn, where he took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Take care of him, he told the innkeeper, and when I come back this way, I will pay you whatever else you spend on him. And Jesus concluded, In your opinion... Which of these three acted like a neighbor toward the man attacked by the robbers? The teacher of the law answered, The one who was kind to him. Jesus replied, You go then, and do the same. Now it's important, and this may be old hat for people who've heard a sermon based around the Good Samaritan before, but it's worth noting that as Jesus is telling this story, not to just one teacher of the law, one scribe, He's telling this to a large group of people who were overhearing him, and they had to have been, well, hanging on his every word. Because we talk about Jesus being the great healer, the great physician, God himself, son of God, but among other things, he was a great storyteller. And you could just imagine this Jewish audience hanging on every word, saying, oh, this guy got beat up, he's left half dead, what's going to happen to him? And a priest comes by, and you can just imagine the crowd saying, hey, great, you know, he's in the hands of the right people now. And how shocked they must have been to hear Jesus telling the story about the priest being so concerned about his own personal holiness, the risk of what would happen if he touched a dead body, if he was taking care of the man who was half dead, and the man cashed in the other half and died on the spot, and now the priest was going to have to go through an elaborate cleansing ritual to actually be able to do his job. So the priest makes a judgment call, says, hey, I could take care of this guy, but then I won't be able to do... It's like all of us who are driving to work on a busy morning, with a meeting waiting for us first thing as soon as we get there, maybe a little doubt about how well prepared we are for that meeting. And as we drive by, we pass a couple of cars that have been in a fender bender. And what do we do? We keep on driving. 
We trust somebody else is going to take care of it because I can't get my job done if I'm the one who stops and waits there for the police to show up. Now, it's perhaps less of a big deal than it used to be. The era of the cell phone makes it much more, um, much easier for all of us to just trust that somebody is going to just pick up the call, make that phone call. Even driving down the road, it's not wise or well advised, but even driving down the road, you could call 911 and report an accident. But back then, you really couldn't. And this priest had to make a decision. So the crowd would be listening and say, well, okay, well, here's another person from good Jewish standing, a Levite. He's going to show up. And their hopes might have been raised again because they knew the priest walked by on the other side. And they were disheartened by that. But the Levite is, he's walking over there. He's, he's heading in the direction of the hurt man. But he makes the same call for perhaps some of the same reasons, crosses by on the other side of the road. Note that we don't know much about this victim. The victim is probably clearly not a Samaritan. Because it's noteworthy that the Samaritan, Jesus' point is that this very unlikely person, this person who was not considered a part of the, really part of the good standing of Judaism, would have stepped up and saved the day. So I think we're led to believe that the victim here is probably a good Jewish citizen in desperate need of help and not getting help from people that God had appointed to the tasks of taking care of his people. Instead, that help comes from the unlikeliest source, a Samaritan. How unlikely is it that a Samaritan would help out? Well, you wonder, when you're reading passages, whether we couldn't interpret some of the attitudes in the American South from white people toward black people as an indication of how Jews might have felt toward Samaritans and how Samaritans reacted in reply. The passage I look to to answer the question of how the Samaritans felt about the Jews is John chapter 4, verse 1 through 30, Jesus and the disciples take a detour through Samaria, beginning with the first verse. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was winning and baptizing more disciples than John. Actually, Jesus himself did not baptize anyone, only his disciples did. So when Jesus heard what was being said, he left Judea and went back to Galilee. On his way there, they had to go through Samaria. They had to go through Samaria. In Samaria, they came to a town called Sychar which was not far from the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by the trip, sat down by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw some water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink of water. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The woman answered him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan. So how can you ask me for a drink? Jews will not use the same cups and bowls that Samaritans use. I mentioned earlier, think of the parallel to the American South. I think you get the drift. Jesus answered, If only you knew what God gives and who it is that is asking you for a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you life-giving water. Sir, the woman said, You don't have a bucket, and the well is deep. Where would you get that life-giving water? It was our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well, he and his children and his flocks all drank from it. You don't claim to be greater than Jacob, do you? Jesus answered, Those who drink this water will get thirsty again, but those who drink the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring which will provide them with life-giving water and give them eternal life. Sir, the woman said, Give me that water. Then I will never be a thirsty again, nor will I ever have to come to the well to draw water. Go and call your husband, Jesus told her, and come back. 
I don't have a husband, she answered. Jesus replied, You are right when you say you don't have a husband. You have been married to five men, and the man you live with now is not really your husband. You have told the truth. I see you are a prophet, sir, the woman said. My Samaritan ancestors worshipped God on this mountain, but you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where we should worship God. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, the time will come when people will not worship the Father either on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans do not really know whom you worship, but we Jews know whom we worship, because it is from the Jews that salvation comes. But the time is coming, and is already here, when by the power of God's Spirit people will worship the Father as He really is, offering Him the true worship that He wants. God is Spirit, and only by the power of His Spirit can people worship Him as He really is. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah will come, and when He comes He will tell us everything. Jesus answered, I am He, I who am talking with you. At that moment, Jesus' disciples returned, and they were greatly surprised to find him talking with a woman. But none of them said to her, What do you want? or asked him, Why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar, went back to town, and said to the people there, Come and see the man who told me everything I have ever done. Could he be the Messiah? So they left town and went to Jesus. There are many things to note here in this passage. First, you hear this concept from time to time among um, active atheists uh, in particular that nowhere in the Bible does Jesus claim to be God or claim to be the Son of God or claim to be the Messiah. The argument is ridiculous on its face, frankly. And here we are in John chapter 4 with Jesus basically telling a woman as bluntly as you possibly can, I am he, the one talking with you is the Messiah. I am the one who is going to be the source of worshiping God in spirit and truth. So we can dismiss that argument. It makes no sense whatsoever. But there's a couple of other things. What is missing in this passage of John chapter 4? There is more where Jesus talks to the disciples and explains to them about the harvest. But really, the woman goes, shares the good news that she has seen the Messiah. The people in town go to see Jesus for themselves, partly because they don't believe the testimony of a woman, and certainly not this woman. But Jesus, for the first time in his ministry, commissions and sends someone out to share the actual good news of who he is. And that person is not just a woman. A woman that even by our modern standards would probably be somebody that the church would say is mired in a pattern of sexual sin. We don't really hear often terms like adulteress and fornicator, but those words might have applied back in the day. But what's missing from the passage? What does Jesus not say? He does not tell her to sin no more. He doesn't send her away with a proclamation that she's allowed to share this good news, but first she must promise to go and uh, give up her um, sins. Do not sin again. He doesn't use that phrase with her. He simply sends her out. This is the same Jesus, mind you, that in Mark's gospel spends most of his time early in his ministry, and this was early in his ministry, most of his time telling people, don't tell people who I am, don't tell people where I am, don't say what I've done, keep this healing between you and me. He didn't need to be traveling through Judea and Israel, swamped by people who had perhaps caught on too quickly that he was actually the Messiah. But this was his one trip through Samaria, perhaps. 
his one shot at reaching the Samaritan people, and he didn't tell her either to keep his identity a secret or to go and sin no more. In fact, he emphatically told her that he was God incarnate and let her go to spread the word far and wide. So this notion that every time Jesus forgives somebody's sins or every time he overlooks their sins or empowers them to perform ministry, he has to give them that stern warning that they've got to give up their bad behaviors. Theoretically, this woman went home that same night to the man with whom she wasn't married after a pattern of at least five previous marriages. He didn't tell her she wasn't allowed to share that she'd met the Messiah until she first spent a year separate from the guy that she's living in sin with and only after they got married after that year of separation to prove that they were truly chaste. None of these concepts that we hear in modern traditional Christianity, this notion coming out of the tradition, has anything to do with Jesus Christ. Jesus took a different approach. So if what's not there is the concept of go and don't sin anymore, not that he's actually telling her to go and have a party and, you know, you know, ravage the land and steal from people. He's not telling her that she's not under the burden to behave as if she's seen God incarnate. I think Jesus is comfortable with the fact that the fact that she knows she's seen God incarnate is probably enough. That that's a, uh, well, a road to Damascus experience. If we were talking about Paul, we'll come to him a little bit later. Now, what's there is this concept of inness versus outness. Jesus went to a place where he was interacting with people who for generations had been told that they were the outcast. They were out. They weren't going to make it. During a time of exile, they had intermingled with the religious beliefs and the traditions of the people that the Jews were told to stay away from. But because everyone else was taken as conquest into a faraway land, this group of Samaritans did whatever they had to do to survive. And they were judged very harshly for it when the Jews who had tried their very best to keep the traditions came back from exile, having struggled to keep the traditions all the time. They didn't take too kindly to those people who would just let those traditions slide. So there was a good, strong concept of Samaritans being out, outcast, the least of these, unwanted, unworthy, living in the cycle of perpetual sin handed down from generations before. And Jesus erases that and replaces it with this concept of inness, that you can be, perhaps, you could be homosexual and still have God's Holy Spirit living and moving within you and leading you to perform acts of unmistakable ministry in Jesus's name. This is perhaps the biggest mistake that people who find themselves on the conservative side of the political spectrum make when it comes to questions of homosexuals in the church. That this notion that I put out there of people barring the door and and, uh, setting up sort of a caste system of how you're allowed to participate and how you're not truly fully a Christian. We're, we don't want to ordain people who are gay. We want to defrock ministers who marry couples who are gay. We want to set this standard up of who's good enough and who's not good enough. And we need to come to recognize that in the Gospels, here in, in the Gospel of John, but throughout the others as well, chronologically starting in the Gospel of John, Jesus begins to completely dismantle this notion we have of inness versus outness. Jesus is telling us that if I have called you, you are a disciple. That a Christian is somebody who is engaged in Christian ministry. Somebody who has felt the touch of God. They're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And we make a mistake when we assume that if somebody has made this decision in their life, or had this mistake in their life, or is dealing with what we decide is a sin in their life, that they can't possibly be a Christian. 
what percentage of Christians are perfect? The answer is zero. So how does Jesus explain this to us? Well, in a previous inappropriate conversation called RSVP, going all the way back, I think, maybe the first year, roughly the first year of the show, I shared a message that I actually shared from the pulpit and church dealing with the next couple of scripture passages I'm going to share. And when I talked earlier about this notion of repetition, it just can't be true that an inappropriate conversation shows a story can only be told one time. I've actually told a few of the most important stories in my life multiple times from different angles. This time I'm going to be sharing a couple of scripture passages in the same way that I did them before. But I think it's important because it ties in here. Because one of the things I was going to do in talking about saying, hey, have we shoved Christ into a closet of homophobia? Maybe we have, and maybe it's time to let him out of that closet. Because I think that Jesus demonstrated, if only in this first section I'm going to cover with this woman in the well, he's shown that he can do miraculous things in the lives of people who have not done things what we as Christians would call the right way. Perhaps the most popular chapters in all of the Bible are John chapter 3 and John chapter 14. I do intend to get to John 3 later, but now is the right time for me to veer into John 14 verses 1 through 10. And some of the elements of this, I think you'll recognize, even if you've never stepped foot in a church before, these are very well-known verses. Do not be worried and upset, Jesus told them. Believe in God and believe also in me. There are many rooms in my Father's house, and I am going to prepare a place for you. I would not tell you this if it were not so. And after I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you there myself, so that you will be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way to get there? Jesus answered him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except by me. Now that you have known me, he said to them, you will know my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, that that is all we need. Jesus answered, For a long time I have been with you all, yet you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Why then do you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe, Philip, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I have spoken to you, Jesus said to his disciples, do not come from me. The Father who remains in me does his own work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. If not, believe because of the things I do. This is one of those passages where people are quick to truck out that what Jesus is saying here in this phrase, no one comes to the Father but by me, is saying that everybody who has ever lived and ever will live who is not a Christian, maybe even a Christian within the narrow band of my denomination, you sometimes hear Roman Catholics talk about this notion of the way being just their way, and all of these Protestants are lost forever. And, of course, it's not hard to find certain Protestant groups who feel exactly the same way about Roman Catholicism. And there was a previous schism before the Protestant Reformation, 500-plus years earlier, between what we now call Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism. No, it's not talking about denominational distinctions. It's not even talking about what we call religious distinctions. When Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but my, by me, he's answering the question, how will I get there? And Jesus is saying, in the most literal way you can imagine, I am the way. He's not saying, 
I am the roadblock stopping anybody who doesn't say the magic words from getting past me. He's saying, I am the way. And I, as a Christian, believe in the providence of God. I believe that Jesus can save whomever Jesus wants to save, and that Jesus not only will, but has saved whomever Jesus wants to save. This is what Jesus means when he says, I am the way. But he also paves the way for a conversation about this notion of inness versus outness. Because notice that in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, Jesus begins to dismantle this notion of the caste system that was in place between Jews and Samaritans. Begins to hint at what was going to happen with the Gentiles later in terms of dismantling this notion of there being an in-group and an out-group. But so many Christians today read John chapter 14 as being, well, exactly that a dividing line, a caste system between who's in and who's out. What Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 24, I think settles any doubt about what Jesus meant about whether or not he was only speaking to the Jews and whether or not today we could think of Jesus as being only capable of saving Christians. I agree with the book by Rob Bell and Don Golden, which from its title alone tells you what I'm thinking here in terms of the title of the book is Jesus Wants to Save Christians Too. It is not only true that I believe that Jesus only saves Christians, I don't believe Jesus only saves people, that some denominational litmus test would look at and say, well, because you've met all these criteria, you're a Christian, therefore Jesus is allowed to save you. We should never be talking as believers about what our Lord is allowed to do. Our Lord is allowed to do anything he wants to do. But, so it's, it's not only that, but we start getting into this notion of, of applying our own litmus test. Here's what Luke says in chapter 14. One Sabbath, Jesus went to a meal at the home of one of the leading Pharisees, and people were watching Jesus closely. A man whose legs and arms were swollen came to Jesus, and Jesus spoke up and asked the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, Does our law allow healing on the Sabbath or not? But they would not say a thing. Jesus took the man, healed him, and sent him away. Then he said to them, If any one of you had a child or an ox that happened to fall in a well on the Sabbath, would you not pull it out at once on the Sabbath itself? But they were not able to answer him about this. Jesus noticed how some of the guests were choosing the best places. So he told this parable to all of them. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place. It could happen that someone more important than you has been invited, and your host, who invited both of you, would have to come and say to you, let him have this place. Then you would be embarrassed and have to sit in the lowest place. Instead, when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that your host will come to you and say, come on up, my friend, to a better place. This will bring you honor in the presence of all the other guests. For those who make themselves great will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be made great. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a lunch or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, for they will invite you back, and in this way you will be paid for what you did. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they are not able to pay you back. God will repay you on the day the good people rise from death. When one of the guests sitting at the table heard this, he said to Jesus, How happy are those who will sit down at the feast in the kingdom of God? Jesus said to him, 
There was once a man who was giving a great feast, to which he invited many people. When it was time for the feast, he sent his servants to tell his guests, Come, everything is ready. But they all began, one after another, to make excuses. The first one told the servant, I have bought a field and must go look at it. Please accept my apologies. Another one said, I bought five pairs of oxen and I am on my way to try them out. Please accept my apologies. Another one said, I have just gotten married and for that reason I cannot come. Tempted to make a joke here, but I won't. Then the servant went back and told all this to his master. The master was furious and said to his servant, Hurry out to the streets and alleys of the town and bring back the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Soon the servant said, Your order has been carried out, sir, but there is room for more. So the master said to the servant, Go out to the country roads and the lanes and make people come in, so that my house will be full. I tell you that none of those who were invited will taste my dinner. What did Jesus say? What did Jesus not say? And how earnestly do we look to him? For the direction in these cases. Well, you know, Jesus said that he is going to exclude those people who do not humble themselves, who assume that because of who they are, they've got a reservation at the great feast at the end of the age, the wedding feast of the Lamb. They're there because of who they are, but not because of what they did. Jesus turns that on his head, said, I am here to reserve a place of honor for those people who have been ignored, abused, and marginalized. Do we look earnestly to him for guidance in these matters? I often wonder, and I often wonder whether even Christians who know these passages, who are not unfamiliar with these parables told in Luke chapter 14, do they understand how seriously Jesus takes them? These notions of taking care of the needy, these notions of forgiving, Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 through 19, verse 12, gives us this account, more from Jesus, another parable, in fact. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, if my brother keeps on sinning against me, how many times do I have to forgive him? Seven times? No, not seven times, answered Jesus, but 70 times seven, because the kingdom of heaven is like this. Once there was a king who decided to check on his servants' accounts. He had just begun to do so when one of them was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. The servant did not have enough to pay his debt. So the king ordered him to be sold as a slave with his wife and children and all that he had in order to pay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before the king. Please be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay you everything. The king felt sorry for him, so he forgave him the debt and let him go. Then the man went out and met one of his fellow servants, who owed him a few dollars. He grabbed the servant, started choking him, saying, Pay me back what you owe me, he said. His fellow servant fell down and begged him, Be patient with me, I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he had him thrown into jail until he should pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were very upset, and went to the king and told him everything. So he called the servant in. You worthless slave, he said. I forgave you the whole amount you owed me just because you asked me to. You should have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you. The king was very angry, and he sent his servant to jail to be punished until he should pay back the whole amount. Remember the million dollars. 
And Jesus concluded, This is how my Father in heaven will treat every one of you, unless you forgive your brother from your heart. We often hear this talk about proportionality. A lot of people are very quick to talk about how small their sins are compared to how big someone else's sin is. And again, we start talking about the relationship in the church between gays and lesbians and what I would describe as the religious right. What you tend to see is people who've decided which sin is the biggest sin of all. And it's usually some sort of sexual sin. It used to be adultery, but now it's it's homosexuality. And because that sin is so big, that sin's a million dollars, that they're not at all worried about the things that they've done wrong, including judging people harshly, not taking care of the sick, the poor, the widows, the orphans. God is telling us, Jesus is telling us in this passage, that you should not get too wound up in how small your debts are compared to how big someone else's debts are. Because you should forgive even a bigger amount. In this case, it's an easy parable. It's appropriately exaggerated. The focus is heightened to such an extent that we're hearing about a king who, for millions of dollars of debt forgiven, is outraged that somebody wouldn't you know, overlook 10 bucks you know, on, on a loan at that level. But the story would be just as valid if it was flipped the other way around, except that it's unlikely that one of these servants would have had a $10 million promissory note coming his way. Picking back up with verse 19, When Jesus finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went to the territory of Judea on the other side of the Jordan River. Large crowds followed him, and he healed some there. Some Pharisees came to him and tried to trap him by asking, Does our law allow a man to divorce his wife for whatever reason he wishes? Jesus answered, Haven't you read the scriptures that says, In the beginning the Creator made people male and female? And God said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and unite with his wife, and the two will become one. So they are no longer two, but one. No human being must separate then what God has joined together. The Pharisees asked him, Why then did Moses give the law for a man to hand his wife a divorce notice and send her away? Jesus answered, Moses gave you permission to divorce your wives because you were so hard to teach. But it was not like that at the time of creation. I tell you then that any man who divorces his wife for any cause other than unfaithfulness commits adultery if he marries some other woman. His disciples said to him, If this is how it is to be between man and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus answered, This teaching doesn't apply to everyone, but only to those whom God has given it. For there are different reasons why men cannot marry. Some because they're born that way. Others because men made them that way. And others do not marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let him who can accept this teaching do so. This is a concept that I've shared before. Most recently on um, an interview with Rick and Amy Moyer on Take Him With You. The Take Him With You show during the summertime had a two-part episode, uh, Getting to Know Greg. And in there I shared this passage and my perspective on the passage that the original word being used there, translated most often as eunuch, gives us an interesting perspective. I think we've already heard enough passages in what Jesus is doing inside his parables to know that he's not wasting a lot of words. If you're a Christian, you believe that Jesus is God incarnate and therefore perfect, that he is the infallible word of God, as John tells us in the very first verse of his gospel, that uh, in the beginning was the word and the word was God. 
So we don't believe that Jesus makes a lot of mistakes. He doesn't. Uh, he doesn't repeat himself unnecessarily. He doesn't make uh, you know foolish repetition. But even if you're not a believer, I think just reading some of these parables, hearing some of these stories told the way Jesus is said to have told them, is going to give you the perspective that this is somebody who uses, who crafts stories very wisely, who puts them together in such a way to, in some cases, put people in a corner. He put not just that lawyer in the parable of the Good Samaritan in a corner. He put all the people who were listening, who assumed the Jews were better than Samaritans, put them in a corner, forced them to deal with things because he crafted his storytelling in a very particular way. So here Jesus talking about this concept of eunuch and saying there's really three kinds. And these are three people for whom marrying a woman doesn't make much sense. That this doctrine of, of, of men having to marry women only applies to some people. It doesn't apply to all people. Three people it doesn't apply to are people who were born that way. We'll get back to that concept in just a second. People who have been castrated by the king. And, you know, therefore, not that much interested in marrying women, incapable of procreating, um, being used as slaves and servants in places where they'd be interacting with the concubines in the king's court. And this would be a precautionary measure to make sure that no offspring were being born to the king's household that weren't the king's doing. And finally, others who do not marry for the kingdom of sake of the kingdom of heaven because they've gone off to do missionary work. So you've got some folks who Jesus says or describes in this using this term eunuch to say, they are capable of marrying women, perhaps on some level deeply want to have a family, or committed sort of that idea of having a family someday, but they choose not to. They voluntarily give it up because they're going to go off uh, in missionary journeys, not unlike what Paul did throughout the book of Acts. There are other people who you know, they can't marry because you know, they're, they've had their testicles removed. Simple as that. And other people who have not had their testicles removed any more than those missionaries had their testicles ritually removed. But despite the fact that they're not They've then been castrated medically, and they haven't in some ways been sort of castrated spiritually, circumcised in a, in a different sort of a way. Still have no interest in marrying women because they were born that way. My perspective is that Jesus is probably the first person in recorded history to use that expression to refer to people that we would describe today as homosexual. He didn't elaborate on it because I believe that the concept that he was dropping there would have been very, very hard for his group of disciples to understand. It was not something that would have been a, t a typical form of relationship during Jesus's era. And yet here we are in an era where you might describe this as a very typical form of relationship. And we assume that Jesus is going to judge this kind of relationship with extreme harshness, threatening to stone people to death. Amer American missionaries going off to Africa and encouraging African governments to put people in prison for the rest of their life, or even put people in prison who are aware of a homosexual couple and don't rat them out, put them in prison for hard time, five to ten years, something like that. And we're obsessed with this notion that Jesus would agree with our political perspective when Jesus Christ says some were born that way. Well, there's earlier references to the concept of eunuch. And this is a passage that was actually called to my attention by someone on Facebook named Kurgan. I shared my perspective about the whole of Matthew chapter 19. Not just the man will leave his father and marry a woman and they'll be joined as one flesh, but the rest of the story that Jesus tells here, when Jesus directly makes an exception to that principle. Kurgan called my attention toward Isaiah chapter 56 verses 1 through 8. And in the uh, Old Testament prophecy, it says this, the Lord says to his people, do what is right and just, for soon I will save you. 
I will bless those who always observe the Sabbath and do not misuse it. I will bless those who do nothing evil. A foreigner who has joined the Lord's people should not say, The Lord will not let me worship with his people. A man who has been castrated should never think that because he cannot have children, he can never be part of God's people. The Lord says to such a man, If you honor me by observing the Sabbath, and if you do what pleases me and faithfully keep my covenant, then your name will be remembered in my temple among the people longer than if you had sons or daughters. You will never be forgotten. I'm going to suggest that homosexual people who have heard the call of the Lord, who want to be part of the church, who want to be actively involved in ministry, are being described here in this passage. This is a literal eunuch being described in Isaiah, but it ties directly with the examples of figurative eunuchs that Jesus would later mention as recorded in Matthew's gospel. You will never be forgotten that you'll, you'll be remembered in my temple and among my people longer than if you had had sons or daughters. You will have a legacy that has nothing to do with childbearing. And yet the church today seems to be obsessed with drawing a hard connection between marriage and childbirth. Picking up in Isaiah, verse 6, And the Lord says to those foreigners who become part of his people, who love him and serve him, who observe the Sabbath and faithfully keep his covenant, I will bring you to Zion, my sacred hill, give you joy in my house of prayer, and accept the sacrifices you offer on my altar. My temple will be called a house of prayer for the people of all nations. The sovereign Lord who has brought his people, Israel, home from exile, has promised that he will bring still other people to join them. I think most Christians take comfort in the connection between this passage and what Paul would later do with the Gentiles. When Paul says, hey, the Lord promised that he was going to reconcile the Jews and the Gentiles, that there is no Jew or Gentile at the foot of the cross. There's no slave and free. There's no male and female. In my opinion, there is no gay or straight distinction at the foot of the cross. It is this passage, in part, that Paul would have been referring to. The United States of America, which, you know, for some of the things that we've done wrong lately, as a country with a legacy that goes back more than 200 years, we have a lot to be proud of. We have been, in our history, a country that brings the foreigner in and gives them a place in our society, much like Isaiah describes here in chapter 56. I'm going to catch my breath here for a moment, perhaps play an ad or two. And come back with some of the passages, some of the other passages that perhaps speak directly to Jesus and encountering people who, by our modern standard, we might say had a homosexual orientation. We talk a lot of times, I do in particular, that Jesus had nothing to say about homosexuality. Therefore, Jesus who fulfilled all the law and replaced it with the commandments that we love God and love our neighbor as we love ourselves, hasn't put any asterisk on that. But in some ways, that might be overstating it just a little bit. In little moments like born that way, and a couple of passages I'll share here in a minute, Jesus perhaps does encounter homosexual people, and how he interacts with them, and what he says about them, and what he doesn't say, like go and sin no more, are very, very interesting. Hi there, this is Rick Moyer, the host of the Take Him With You weekly podcast. My wife Amy and I talk every week about all sorts of cool geeky things going on around our house. Plus, we have some uh, positive words of encouragement and then a subject every week that is sure to uh, make you think a little bit and hopefully encourage you for the week to come. That's our goal. Visit us at TakeHimWithYou.com. 
You can also find us on iTunes. Just search for Take Him With You. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Thanks. Hi, I'm Tony Pucci, and I lost my sister Jenny to ALS. Songs for Jenny is a charity CD for ALS patient care and research. Otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS is a disease without a cure. The Songs for Jenny CD features my music along with guest vocalists from around the world. All proceeds from the sale of the Songs for Jenny CD will be donated to the ALS Association of America, Minnesota chapter. To find out more and to purchase the CD, please visit www.songsforjenny.com. Luke chapter 6 verse 43 through 7 verse 10, Gospel according to Luke, says this, starting with Jesus speaking. A healthy tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a poor tree bear good fruit. Every tree is known by the fruit it bears. You do not pick figs from thorn bushes or gather grapes from bramble bushes. A good person brings good out of the treasure of the things in his heart. A bad person brings bad out of the treasure of bad things. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet don't do what I tell you? Anyone who comes to me and listens to my words and obeys them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man who, in building his house, dug deep and laid the foundation on rock. The river flooded over and hit that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But anyone who hears my words and does not obey them is like a man who built his house without laying a foundation. When the flood hit that house, it fell at once. And what a terrible crash that was. When Jesus finished saying all these things to the people, he went to Capernaum. A Roman officer there had a servant who was very dear to him. The man was sick and about to die. When the officer heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to take him and come and heal this servant. They came to Jesus and begged him earnestly, This man really deserves your help. He loves our people, and he has built a synagogue for us. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the officer sent friends to tell him, Sir, don't trouble yourself. I don't deserve to have you come into my house. Neither do I consider myself worthy to come to you in person. Just give the order, and my servant will get well. I too am a man placed under the authority of superior officers, and I have soldiers under me. I order this one go, and he goes. I order to that one come, and he comes. And I order my slave do this, and he does it. Jesus was surprised when he heard this. He turned around and said to the crowd following him, I tell you that I have never found faith like this, not even in Israel. The messengers went back to the officer's house and found his servant well. There's a parallel passage in Matthew, Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a Roman officer met him and begged for help. Sir, my servant is sick in bed at home, unable to move and suffering terribly. I will go and make him well, Jesus said. Oh, no, sir, answered the officer. I do not deserve to have you come into my house. Just give the order and my servant will get well. I, too, am a man under authority of superior officers, and I have soldiers under me. I order this one go, and he goes. I order that one come, and he comes. And I order my slave do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was surprised and said to the people following him, I tell you I have never found anyone in Israel with faith like this. I assure you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the, king, at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. 
But those who should be in the kingdom will be thrown down into darkness, where they will cry and gnash their teeth. Then Jesus said to the officer, Go home, and what you believe will be done for you. And the officer's servant was healed at that very moment. Jesus is saying that there are some people who will actually be in the kingdom, ready to be served this feast at the day of judgment, and they'll be thrown out into darkness. And there'll be great people coming from elsewhere, outside of Judaism, from the East and from the West, who will have a seat at that table. And he's basically saying that this man will have a seat that is worthy of greater honor than anyone Jesus found in Israel. A man with greater faith that he has not found anywhere among the Jews. This is a Roman officer. This is an occupier. This is somebody whom... The people, while they might have respected him more than a lot of the other Romans, that he had actually had a big heart and done right by the people that he was an occupying force there from. The other thing kind of hidden in this passage, though, is the great probability that this Roman officer might have, like other Roman officers, engaged in homosexual acts. He makes the interesting claim of being somebody who had a servant who was very dear to him, a beloved slave is perhaps closer to a word-for-word translation. And there are many people who believe, it's controversial, of course, but there are many people who believe that this this servant of his might have actually been the kind of servant where, well, let's call it a servant with benefits, where perhaps sexual favors were exchanged between them. We don't know it because it's not stated. But Jesus here, once more, has had an opportunity to denounce homosexuality and has chosen not to do it. He could have called out the difference between this beloved slave and other servants of other Roman officers who were different in some way. Because either this term, beloved slave, was referring to this servant with benefits, this quiver-bearer type fellow, this shield manager, who was uh, also willing to perform other services on behalf of, of his captain. But either that was true and Jesus completely overlooks it, is absolutely irrelevant, and is instead taken by the strength of this man's faith... Or Jesus had the opportunity here to call out that this beloved slave was different from every other beloved slave you're going to find in this hideously immoral Roman army. Yet Jesus did not. I believe that the Lord of all things knew we'd be talking about these things in this day and age. That we'd be having this precise inappropriate conversation at this precise time. And yet he, the Lord of all, left the matter open to question. And I'm left to wonder why. Where God has left a period, I will not put a question mark. Certainly. But where God has left a comma, I will not put a period either. Or wording it differently, where the Bible is silent, I will not shout. There are a lot of people in this day and age spending a lot of time doing a lot of shouting about who's allowed to be a Christian and who's not allowed to be a Christian. Let's take all the questions of sexual behavior and sexual orientation out of these parallel passages between um, the section in Luke chapter 6 and 7 and the section in Matthew chapter 8. Just take all that out. You're still left with somebody who's an enemy, who was an outsider, who was a foreigner, who was an occupier. And Jesus is saying, this person has a place of honor in heaven. It's not outness. Jesus is preaching a gospel of inness, and therefore every time someone uses the phrase that uh, no one gets the Father but by me, 
as some sort of concept that Jesus is preaching a gospel of outness, they need to correct themselves. They are not reading the Bible for all it's worth. Who is selectively reading passages of Scripture now? I'm talking about people who are reading not even the entirety of John 14, verse 6, as it's stated there, and in the context in which it's presented just inside John chapter 14. And those people would have the temerity to say that I'm misreading Scripture because I'm willing to interpret John 14 in light of things that Jesus said and did elsewhere in Luke 14, in Luke 6, in Luke 7, in Matthew 8. How about what Jesus said in John chapter 10? Let's start at the beginning of the chapter, work our way through verse 18, and see if we can find more from Jesus about this concept of inness versus outness, because eventually it is going to make a case in our hearts and hopefully in our minds as well that Jesus is preaching a gospel, that the one thing we can do to offend him more than anything else is exclude people in his name. If the Holy Spirit is calling people to ministry, a Roman centurion with a peculiar love relationship with one of his servants, for example. Who are we to stand in his way and give him a book of rules from a set of laws that he personally told us he was going to fulfill? When he says, not one dot or iota is going to go away until all is accomplished, he is telling us that, hey, once it is accomplished, it is gone. Certainly that was the impression of his apostles, the real apostles, not the sad excuse for apostles we get today. John chapter 10. Jesus said, I am telling you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who goes in through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him. The sheep hear his voice as he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought them out, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow someone else. Instead, they will run away from such a person, because they do not know his voice. Jesus told them this parable, but they did not understand what he meant. So Jesus said again, I'm telling you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All others who come in before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep do not listen to them. I am the gate. Those who come in by me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes in only in order to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come in order that you might have life, life in all its fullness. I am the good shepherd who is willing to die for the sheep. When the hired man who is not a shepherd and does not own the sheep sees a wolf coming, he leaves the sheep and runs away. So the wolf snatches the sheep and scatters them. The hired man runs away because he is only a hired man and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, as the Father knows me and I know the Father. In the same way, I know my sheep and they know me, and I am willing to die for them. There are other sheep which belong to me that are not in this sheep pen. I must bring them too. They will listen to my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. The Father loves me, because I am willing to give up my life in order that I may receive it back again. No one takes my life from me. I give it up of my own free will. I have the right to give it up, and I have the right to take it back. This is what my Father commanded me to do. Jesus is speaking here. Let there be no mistake. Jesus is speaking here when he's talking about other sheep. In Paul's mind, he was talking about the Gentiles. Perhaps Jesus shared with the woman that he met at the well that maybe those other sheep are the Samaritans. 
I would suggest to you that Jesus is telling us in the passages I've just recently shared that some of those other sheep are people who have been excluded from the church due to their sexual orientation, due to their race, due to some other parts about them. Have they used illegal drugs in their past? Do they have tattoos? Have they either had an abortion or encouraged a woman to get an abortion? Have they been part of a clinic that performed abortion? Whatever the reasons are that we exclude people, we are so short-sighted. We are like the sheep inside our own little Christian pen. In some ways, no smarter, no more intelligent than the disciples were who perceived that Jesus had come to the Jewish sheep in the Jewish pen. And Jesus had to tell them that, hey, this is not the only place my flock is gathered. I'm going to come here. I'm going to call out my sheep. They will hear my voice and they will follow me. But there's going to be other sheep and they are going to become one flock. Not two separate but equal flocks. One flock. Hello, Dave Prouse here. And when I'm not performing my one-man show, The True Voice of the Dark Side, I listen to Here Goes Nothing on the Simply Syndicated Network. Right, back to rehearsals. Commander, tear this ship apart until you find those plans and bring me all passengers. I want them alive! This notion of Jesus creating one flock is crucial to us. As we come to terms with some of the, some of the language you see in the Old Testament primarily, but it's, it points in the New Testament, and certainly the language you hear from a lot of Christians today about this notion of a Christian nation, this notion of the chosen people. We've already covered that Paul has made really clear the only concept of chosenness that is truly biblical is Jesus. Jesus is Abraham's seed. He is the descendant. He is the chosen one. And the only way to be chosen is to have faith in Christ. But the interesting thing, as you explore this just a little bit further, is this notion of whether a national identity is relevant anymore. When Jesus takes the sheep from the Jewish pen and merges them with the Samaritan pen, and later, through Paul, merges them with the Gentile pen, we're no longer talking about a Jewish state or a Jewish nation. We're no longer talking about a Christian nation for the exact same reasons, and the Christian nation is such an irrelevant concept that it doesn't matter whether it's the United States or some other country. It's, well, it's pointless. Jesus is not making multiple pens, each with a, with a national identity. He's talking about merging 12 tribes and those reached by the 12 disciples into one multitude, mathematically 12 times 12 times 1,000, a number that John of Patmos in the Revelation of St. John the Divine describes as a number too big to ever count. Now, 144,000 is not a number too big to ever count. But maybe 12 times 12 times 1,000 means something more symbolic than that. And perhaps it means that there is no such thing as national identity within that group any longer. In Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38, this is the passage I use to talk about Jesus establishing this concept of a relationship. On the left side of the political spectrum, I tend to focus most of my criticism on the religious right because, frankly, the religious right is doing the most wrong right now. But on the left side of the political spectrum, you hear people just suggest from time to time that this concept of having a relationship with God, this concept of a personal relationship, is no more emphatically claimed in the Bible than the idea of the Trinity. I might be willing to smile and nod at that concept, because the Trinity is not emphatically noted either, and yet Jesus does talk about himself and the Father and himself as the Holy Spirit in an objective way. So the, the Trinitarian ideas flowing throughout the Gospels. And likewise, this notion of 
of any one of us having a relationship with, with God is right here in Mark's Gospel. Picking up with verse 27. Jesus went out, along with his disciples, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And Jesus warned them to tell no one about him. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his fathers and with the holy angels. So what did the apostles do with this interesting exchange, with this very direct piece of communication in Mark's Gospel, where Jesus is shown as kind of executing both sides of his of his approach in some cases saying hey don't tell people too explicitly that i'm the christ but on the other hand telling people that any one of you must pick up your cross and follow me you can't hide under the robes of the scribes and the pharisees the sadducees and how well the temple is managed is not going to provide you any salvation it's you and me it's what does it profit a man who gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? It doesn't matter how good his country is. It's you and me. Whoever, which one of you individually is ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of him. And I, I fear that really too often today in Christianity, we have Christians who are hiding behind the collective in exactly the manner that Jesus warns us here not to do. This notion of, of well, we've, we've got to be a Christian nation, or we've got to be the moral majority, or we've got to be the born-again evangelical. We've got to be this group so that I can hide my unworthiness inside some bigger group that is going to save me just like the nation of Israel was exalted by God throughout the Old Testament. Well, i got news for you. On the cross, Jesus changed everything. Everything. He got rid of those laws. He got rid of that notion of a... Uh, of a special chosen people at the same time. What did the disciples do with this, though? How did it ultimately play out? Well, I'm going to pick up the book of Acts chapter 4, verse 32, through chapter 5, verses 16. And this is the period of time when the disciples are organizing themselves, being sent out as apostles to form what we would call the early church. This is several months after Jesus, uh, not just his death and resurrection, but his ascension. Jesus has gone, the Holy Spirit has come, and this is what the disciples, and now because now we call them apostles, same folks by and large, are doing with their calling. Picking up with verse 32. The group of believers was one in mind and heart. 
None of them said that any of their belongings were their own, but they all shared with one another everything they had. With great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God poured rich blessings on them all. There was no one in the group who was in need. Those who owned fields or houses would sell them, bring the money received from the sale, and turn it over to the apostles. And the money was distributed according to the needs of the people. And so it was that Joseph, a Levite born in Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, meaning one who encourages, sold a field he owned, bought, brought the money, and turned it over to the apostles. But there was a man named Ananias, who with his wife Sapphira sold some property that belonged to them, but with his wife's agreement, he kept part of the money for himself and turned the rest over to the apostles. Peter said to him, Ananias, why did you let Satan take control of you and make you lie to the Holy Spirit by keeping part of the money you received for the property? Before you sold, the property belonged to you, and after you sold it, the money was yours. Why then did you decide to do such a thing? You have not lied to the people. You have lied to God. And as soon as Ananias heard this, he fell down dead. And all who heard about it were terrified. The young men came in, wrapped up his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife, not knowing what had happened, came in. Peter asked her, Tell me, was this the full amount you and your husband received for your property? Yes, she answered, the full amount. So Peter said to her, Why did you and your husband decide to put the Lord's Spirit to the test? The men who buried your husband are at the door right now, and they will carry you out too. At once she fell down at his feet and died. The young men came in, saw that she was dead, so they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. The whole church and all the others who heard this were terrified. Many miracles and wonders were being performed among the people by the apostles. All the believers met together in Solomon's porch. Nobody outside the group dared join them, even though the people spoke highly of them. But more and more people were added to the group, a crowd of men and women who believed in the Lord. As a result of what the apostles were doing, sick people were carried out onto the streets and placed on beds and mats, so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. And the crowds of people came in from towns around Jerusalem, bringing those who were sick or who had evil spirits in them, and they were all healed. If nothing else, this strange passage from the book of the Acts of the Apostles gives us a sense of just how seriously the apostles took the idea that individually we are accountable for our actions before God, that there is no longer this notion of a chosen people or a group of temple priests or a Christian nation who can speak for us either to do good to cover up for our sins or to make mistakes for which we'll be judged. This idea that if two people who are in love with each other who happen to be of the same gender are allowed to live peacefully in what we assume to be a blissful relationship, that all of us are somehow doomed because the Lord is going to cast his spell of anger upon us. It's inconsistent with what Jesus taught in the Gospel according to Mark. It's inconsistent with the stories that are related afterward in the Acts of the Apostles. Jesus has told us, you are accountable before God before your own actions, and you are accountable before God for your own beliefs, too. If I think of it when I get to the different drummer segment, I may come back to that specific point, because our different drummer this week, I think, turned and really opened up her relationship with the Lord on that very point. I can't blame the pastor 
I can't hide behind the words of a book. I am accountable to the Lord for what I believe and for what I do about it. Because Jesus said, if any one of you wants to be in relationship with me, pick up your own cross. No one's carrying it for you. Peoples of the universe, please attend carefully. The message that follows is vital to the future of you all. Greetings, fellow wanderers in the fourth dimension. I'm Emma Foster. And I'm Michael Mould. And we're the hosts of The Greatest Show in the Galaxy, Simpson Syndicated's foray into all things Doctor Who. From the old... Hey, Doctor Who, what are you talking about? To the new... I'm the Doctor, I'm worse than everybody's aunt. From the good... We obey no one, we are the superior beings. To the bad... No, not the mind's pro. From the sublime... Don't blink. Don't even blink. Blink and you're dead. To the ridiculous. My dreams of conquest. We'll be sharing our thoughts and feelings across the broad spectrum of the Hooniverse. You're serious, aren't you? About what I do, yes. Not necessarily the way I do it. That's the greatest show in the galaxy, part of the simply syndicated 21st century media network. Splendid fellows, all of you, all of you. Was everybody on board with these ideas of Jesus and the words he was preaching? Well, we know that everybody wasn't. It's actually, it's easy pickings from a a sharpshooting perspective to point the crosshairs at the Pharisees. The Pharisees are mentioned numerous times. The Sadducees don't get a clean break either. Uh, When Jesus is mentioning teachers of the law and scribes, there's a lot of people who were in positions of religious authority who were rejecting what it was that Jesus said. I would say to you that I view the religious right in America today as, by and large, being just as much a group of Pharisees as the people that Jesus was sparring with on a regular basis. Because those are the religious authorities of our day, who seem to be contradicting the directions that we get from Jesus on a regular basis. Ideas about whether we should be taking care of immigrant children who've come to flee a murderous rampage in their country. Jesus would say, yes, the religious right, the Pharisees in our era, Said Well, they've certainly said no, haven't they? But that's not all there was. There were doubts among Jesus' own circle. There were doubts even within his family. So we read in Mark chapter 3, beginning verse 20 through 35, we get this interesting passage which calls a couple of things to question. It calls to question the idea of whether Mary and Joseph had children. Clearly, according to Mark's gospel, they did. And it also calls to question about whether or not we can take for granted that Jesus' family was on board. Clearly, from Mark's gospel, they were not. Picking up with verse 20. Then Jesus went home. Again, such a large, large crowd gathered around that Jesus and his disciples had no time to eat. When his family heard about it, they set out to take charge of him because people were saying he's gone mad. Some teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem were saying he has Beelzebub in him. It is the chief of the demons who gives him the power to drive them out. So Jesus called them to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan, Jesus said. If a country divides itself into groups which fight with each other, that country will fall apart. If a family divides itself into groups which fight each other, the family will fall apart. So if Satan's kingdom divides into groups, it cannot last, but will fall apart and come to an end. No one can break into a strong man's house and take away his belongings unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder the house. I assure you that people can be forgiven all their sins and all evil things they may say. But whoever says evil things against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. 
because he has committed an eternal sin. Jesus said this because some people were saying, He has an evil spirit in him. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. They stood outside the house and sent in a message asking for him. A crowd was sitting around Jesus, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside, and they want you. Jesus answered, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? He looked at the people sitting around him and said, Look, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does what God wants is my brother, my sister, my mother. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 24, Jesus reminds us right here near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do what my Father in heaven wants them to do. When the judgment day comes, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, in your name we spoke God's message. By your name we drove out many demons and performed many miracles. Then I will say to them, I never knew you. Get away from me, you wicked people. Also, Luke chapter 13, verse 22 to 30. Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching the people and making his way toward Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Sir, will just a few people be saved? Jesus answered them, Do your best to go in through the narrow door, because many people will surely try to go in but will not be able. The master of the house will get up and close the door. Then when you stand outside and begin to knock on the door, say, Open the door for us, sir. He will answer you, I don't know where you come from. Then you will answer, We ate and drank with you. You taught in our town. But he will say, I don't know where you come from. Get away from me, all you wicked people. How you will cry and gnash your teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, while you are thrown out. People will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down at the feast in the kingdom of God. Then those who are now last will be first, and those who are now first will be last. So we've got Jesus talking in a couple of passages in Matthew and Luke about this concept of gnashing of teeth. And the thing I think that probably should frighten the religious right more than anything else is the very real risk that despite all the things they have said and done in Jesus' name, Jesus is going to say, I kind of told you what I had in mind. You went off and did a completely different thing. And now you're pretending that you know me? You're a comers-on showing up with you know a, half, a handful or a half dozen of Honduran children murdered when we met them at the border of our country, evangelical Christians more than anyone else, as a matter of fact, and sent them back home because our country was too much of a Christian nation, was too much of a sovereign state, was too much at risk from these you know, non-English-speaking poor people to risk bringing them into our society and providing them asylum. It strikes me as exactly the kind of thing that might lead Jesus to say, hey, you know what? I never knew you. I did know a handful of Honduran children, but I never knew you. To me, the worst thing about the political approach here, to switch over to the political side of an inappropriate conversations show, is how often the politics of the religious right is used to divide. The notion is that we can't have that kind in here, or you're either, you're either for small government or you're out, or whatever the dividing line is. The, the notion of wedge issue, which frankly those who have courted the vote of the religious right have turned into you know, just act, an actual political staple of sorts, those wedge issues and the wedges that they create fly right in the face of what Jesus says in Mark chapter 3. If a country divides itself into two groups with fight with, fight with each other, that country will fall apart. 
You don't get there because one side wins and the other side loses. You get there by having both sides defer to a greater authority. And it's interesting to me that what Christians should do by deferring to the authority of God himself, they tend not to do. Jesus tells us that some people are born that way, and we're just going to have to get used to it. The religious right right now, from the perspective of opening the closet of Christian homophobia, is just unwilling to get used to the idea that Jesus might be okay with somebody who's engaged in homosexual acts if he has great faith, if he humbles himself before the Lord. That humbling yourself before the Lord is much more important than being quote-unquote right all the time. But really, this question from the perspective of homosexuality, and it all comes down to the, the obsession over gay marriage. And I think a lot of this, I've, from an inappropriate conversations perspective, especially from a political perspective, has sort of sat on the sidelines. And I guess maybe it's important that before I go further and quote again from Mark's gospel, I might want to make clear what my perspective here is, because I'm not sure I've accomplished it as well as I should. I believe that the government should be out of the marriage business. I don't think that it serves Christianity well for us to have um, something that we view as a sacred, almost sacrament. For, for some Christian denominations, marriage is an actual sacrament. Why in the world are we yielding it to the hands of government? We ought to be holding it in the church where it belongs. How do you get there? Well, you get there by saying that the government is in the business of civil unions and that everybody, including my own marriage, is from the perspective of the, uh, of the U.S. government or the state that I live in, not truly a marriage. It's simply a civil union. It's an agreement of how I, as a person in a relationship with somebody that could be viewed as contractual, could also be viewed as sacred, but whatever that relationship is, it is recognized by the state in the same way that other relationships are, regardless of age, sex, creed, color, sexual orientation, no matter what. The state should not care. The state should simply in the, be in the business of making sure that due process is followed and that everyone has equal rights. That's the American scripture. But that doesn't mean marriage goes away. It just means that what we call marriage moves into the church. And if you've got a church that refuses to allow the word marriage to be applied to a couple who come to see you with a piece of paper that says they've already engaged in a civil union with the state and that they want to have the ceremony to actually create a marriage in the eyes of God, you have the right to say no to that. Period. Now, that should be sacred. That any church has the right to marry whom they please and they have the right to not marry whom they please. And maybe the only stipulation we provide is that there be a civil partnership in place to make sure that no laws are being broken. To make sure that that people are not being abused, uh, people being forced into forced marriages too young, or um, multiple partner marriages where we know that there tends to be a lot of coercion and abuse engaged in those relationships. It answers the questions that people raise and fear about pedophilia and bestiality and all that other sort of stuff. The, the state's not going to grant a civil union between you know a 40-year-old man and a four-year-old girl. It's not going to happen. But if the state recognizes a civil partnership between two homosexual men, two lesbians, then you as a church have the option to say either yes to that or no to that. I'm going to marry these people or I'm not going to marry these people. And there's not anything that anybody should be able to do. And I, I fear that we may be tilting the balance and trying to establish equal rights for people in a place where the state is so out of whack on the issue, all over the map on the issue, to be honest with you, with different states having different perspectives, that we may be stuck in a place where the pendulum could swing too far the other way. The government should not have the right to tell a church
what it must do or what it must not do in relationship with a partnership, whether it's a civil partnership or a state-recognized marriage or not. The, the church and state relationship should be preserved in that manner. But too often today, we're seeing people whose entrepreneurial business model is based around commerce, who are not priests, who are not bishops, who are not pastors in the sense of pastoring a local church, asserting that they have some sort of cathedral rights in terms of how they interact with others. It's appropriate for the state to say people have the right to engage freely in commerce without prejudice, regardless of race, color, creed, so forth and so on. And you do not get to assert your religious faith in that avenue. But at the same time, if a civil partnership concept like the one I envisioned when this issue first cropped up about 10 years ago, if that were to be the law of the land today, it would still be a law that protects a church that says, I refuse to marry those two people. That ought to be good enough, refusing to marry those two people for any reason whatsoever. In fact, I would actually tell that interracial couple that I'm not sure you want to be able to force that church to marry you against its will. Because why should the most sacred day in your relationship be tarnished by the hateful prejudice of the pastor that you're asking to lead the ceremony? That's kind of where I stand on this issue. But the biggest problem that the churches have when they begin to assert some sort of apocalyptic vision to the significance of marriage, when they start talking about God striking us all dead because the state may recognize the legal rights of people who are in a marriage relationship that that particular church may not have been willing to participate in by marrying the couple. They make an argument about an eternal quality of marriage, which we know from the Bible is not true. We know it from Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 34. Then some Sadducees, who say that people will not rise from death, came to Jesus and said, Teacher, Moses wrote this law for us. If a man dies and leaves his wife but no children, then that man's brother must marry the widow so that they can have children who will be considered the dead man's children. Once there were seven brothers. The oldest got married and died without having children. Then the second one married the woman, and he also died without having children. The same thing happened to the third brother, and then to all the rest. All seven brothers married the woman and died without having children. Last of all, the woman died. Now, when all the dead rise to life on the day of resurrection, whose wife will she be? All seven of them had married her. Jesus answered them, How wrong you are! And do you know why? It's because you don't know the scriptures or God's power. For when the dead rise to life, they will be like the angels in heaven and will not marry. Now, as far as being, as far as the dead being raised... Haven't you ever read in the book of Moses the passage about the burning bush? There it is written that God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is the God of the living, not of the dead. You are completely wrong. A teacher of the law was there and heard the discussion. He saw that Jesus had given the Sadducees a good answer. So he came up with a question. Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus replied, the most important one is this. Listen, Israel. The Lord our God is the only Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and with all your strength. The second most important commandment is this. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. There is no other commandment more important than these two. The teacher of the law said to Jesus, Well done, teacher. It is true, as you say. 
that only the Lord is God, and that there is no other God but He. And you must love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and with all your strength, and you must love your neighbor as you love yourself. It is more important to obey these two commandments than to offer on the altar animals and any other sacrifices to God. Jesus noticed how wise his answer was, and so he told him, You were not far from the kingdom of God. After this, nobody dared to ask Jesus any more questions. But I wonder what questions would the Jesus plus people have asked if they were there at that time? Because the Jesus plus crowd believes that these two commandments are important, as Jesus says, but also the Ten Commandments, and also all the rules about sexual morality, and also, and also, and also, and also. And, and, and what I tend to hear when I tell people that, no, it really comes down to just love God and love your neighbor. And with the Holy Spirit's power, you will not do anything that is offensive to the Lord, even if it appears to break the letter of the Old Testament laws. Their question to me might be, therefore their question back to Jesus might be, well, show me exactly what you're talking about. Are you even quoting the Old Testament correctly? Because the Old Testament has the law, not the New Testament. As if, as I've shared before, that idea is even relevant. But just to humor people, I will go back to the Old Testament and we'll see if Jesus has described accurately what's written there. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. These are all the laws that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. Obey them in the land that you are about to enter and occupy. As long as you live, you and your descendants are to honor the Lord your God and obey all his laws that I am giving you, so that you may live in that land a long time. Listen to them, people of Israel, and obey them. Then all will go well with you, and you will become a mighty nation, and live in that rich and fertile land just as the Lord, the God of our ancestors, has promised. Israel, Remember this, the Lord, and the Lord alone is our God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Never forget the commands I am giving you today. Teach them to your children. Repeat them when you are at home and when you are away, and when you are resting, and when you are working. Tie them on your arms. Wear them on your foreheads as a reminder. Write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. And Leviticus chapter 19, verses 15 through 18. Be honest and just when you make decisions in legal cases. Do not show favoritism to the poor or fear the rich. Do not spread lies about anyone. And when someone is on trial for his life, speak out if your testimony can help. I am the Lord. Do not bear a grudge against others, but settle your differences with them so that you will not commit a sin because of them. Do not take revenge on others or continue to hate them, but love your neighbors as you love yourself. I am the Lord. So if that, as they say, is the word of God written for the people of God in the time of the Old Testament, what is the word of God on this matter written for the people of God in the time of the New Testament? It's Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. And it says some very ironic things about the attitude of many religious conservatives about our government today, starting with verse 1. Everyone must obey state authorities because no authority exists without God's permission, and the existing authorities have been put there by God. Whoever opposes the existing authority opposes what God has ordered, and anyone who does so will bring judgment on himself. For rulers are not to be feared by those who do good, but by those who do evil. Would you like to be unafraid of those in authority? Then do what is good, and they will praise you. 
because they are God's servants working for your own good. But if you do evil, then be afraid of them, because their power to punish is real. They are God's servants and carry out God's punishment on those who do evil. For this reason, you must obey the authorities, not just because of God's punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. That is also why you pay taxes, because the authorities are working for God when they fulfill their duties. Pay then what you owe them. Pay them your personal and property taxes, and show respect and honor for them all. Be under obligation to no one. The only obligation you have is to love one another. Whoever does this has obeyed the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not commit murder, do not steal, do not desire what belongs to someone else. All these and any others besides are summed up in the one command, love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you love others, you will never do them wrong. To love, then, is to obey the whole law. Previously on Starbase 66. My two-and-a-half-year-old daughter loves Darth Vader. You know, it, it, and the other day, she was playing with a little Darth Vader, one of our, we have a few Darth Vader toys around. She's like, Darth Vader, Darth Vader. <laughs> it's adorable when she does it. And I was like, do you want to see Darth Vader on TV? Yeah. And so I dug out The Empire Strikes Back, and we just cut straight to the, the saber battle with her and Luke. And all through the thing, she kept going, Luke, stop it! <laughs> Luke, stop it! Protect Darth Vader! <laughs> Listen to Starbase 66, the international Star Trek and genre fiction podcast on simplysyndicated.com, SoundCloud, and iTunes. What is this love, then? I've got Jesus talking about love. I've got the author of Leviticus, be that Moses in a ceremonial sense, or actually Moses himself, talking about love. And I've got the Apostle Paul talking about love. Well, conveniently, Paul probably does the best job of giving us a definition that we can work with. I'm going to put the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians in context, though, starting with chapter 12, verse 27, and stretching over into chapter 14, verse 1. All of you are Christ's body. And each one has a part of it. In the church, God has put all in place. In the first place, apostles. In the second place, prophets. And in the third place, teachers. Then those who perform miracles, followed by those who are given the power to heal, or to help others, or to direct them, or to speak in strange tongues. They are not all apostles or prophets or teachers. Not everyone has the power to work miracles, or to heal diseases, or to speak in strange tongues, or to explain what is said. Set your hearts, then, on the more important gifts. Best of all, however, is the following way. I may be able to speak in the languages of human beings and even of angels, but if I have no love, my speech is no more than a noisy gong or a clanging bell. I may have the gift of inspired preaching. I may have all knowledge and understand all secrets. I may have all the faith needed to move mountains. But if I have no love, I am nothing. I may give away everything I have, and even give up my body to be burned. But if I have no love, this does mean no good. Love is patient and kind. It is not jealous or conceited or proud. Love is not ill-mannered or selfish or irritable. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love is not happy with evil, but is happy with the truth. 
Love never gives up, and its faith, hope, and patience never fail. Love is eternal. There are inspired messages, but they are only temporary. There are gifts of speaking in strange tongues, but they will cease. There is knowledge, but it will pass. For our gifts of knowledge and of inspired messages are only partial. But when what is perfect comes, then what is partial will disappear. When I was a child, my speech, feelings, and thinking were all those of a child. Now that I am an adult, I have no more use for childish ways. What we see now is like a dim image in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. What I know now is only partial. Then it will be complete, as complete as God's knowledge of me. Meanwhile, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. It is love, then, that you should strive for. Set your hearts on spiritual gifts, especially the gift of proclaiming God's message. So, I think Paul is suggesting here that if the greatest gift is love, and if we just set our hearts toward the spiritual gift of proclaiming God's message, we must need to be talking about how God shows his love. Traditionally in the church, the place you hear this most often is in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. There was a Jewish leader named Nicodemus who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. One night he went to Jesus and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher sent by God. No one could perform the miracles you were doing unless God were with him. Jesus answered, I am telling you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. How can a grown man be born again? Nicodemus asked. He certainly cannot enter his mother's womb and be born a second time. I am telling you the truth, Jesus replied, that no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. A person is born physically of human parents, but is born spiritually of the Spirit. Do not be surprised because I tell you that all must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wishes. You hear the sound that it makes, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. It is like that with everyone who is born of the Spirit. How can this be? asked Nicodemus. It's important to note here, jumping in, that when Jesus is talking about being born again, he's talking about the infilling, indwelling, and relationship with the Holy Spirit. You often hear Christians today describe this concept of born-again Christian as being aligning oneself with a set of specific beliefs. But Jesus is not talking about creed. He's not talking about alignment with belief. And he's certainly not talking about something that you do. This concept of being born again is talking about having a relationship with the spirituality of the Spirit. That's a different matter altogether than what you often hear described politically as the concept of born again. But jumping back in, Nicodemus is asked how this can be, and Jesus answered, You are a great teacher in Israel, and you don't know this? I am telling you the truth. We speak of what we know and report what we have seen, yet none of you is willing to accept our message. You do not believe me when I tell you about the things of this world. How will you ever believe me, then, when I tell you about the things of heaven? And no one has ever gone up to heaven except the Son of Man who came down from heaven. As Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the desert, in the same way the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world so much that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him 
may not die, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to be its judge, but to be its Savior. I mentioned that I was going to be repeating myself a bit here. I've talked about this passage before in an episode about the worst Easter Sunday service I have ever seen before. Uh, My commitment to the importance of not John 3.16, but John 3.16 and 17 taken together. Or John 14 through 17 taken together. But it's worth calling back again to what Jesus is referring to, because I think probably most Christians today, and certainly a lot of people who have not very actively read the Bible, could easily be confused by why Jesus is referring to Moses and this concept of lifting up a bronze snake on a pole in the desert. We don't hear that in the, in the context of, for God so loved the world he gave his only son, but that's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about himself being lifted up on a cross and other people seeing and having faith in what that means and what came after it. The parallel passage is in Numbers, chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. The Israelites left Mount Hor by the road that leads to the Gulf of Aqaba in order to go around the territory of Edom. But on the way, people lost their patience and spoke against God and Moses. They complained, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to die in this desert where we have no food or water? We can't stand any more of this miserable food. Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, And many Israelites were bitten and died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Now pray to the Lord to take these snakes away. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord told Moses to make a metal snake and put it on a pole so that anyone who was bitten could look at it and be healed. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. And anyone who had been bitten would look to the snake and be healed. One of the interesting things to me about this story is its testimony about faith. The concept here is not that the people asked for forgiveness and their sins were taken away. No, the mistakes that they made were still there. The judgment against them was still there. The snakes were still biting them, as a matter of fact. What Moses did in cooperating with the the direction of the Lord was give them something they could look to as a demonstration of their faith so that they could be healed of the consequences of their actions. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus in this passage in John 3.16 that this is a parallel to what Moses did in the desert, that Jesus himself is going to be lifted up as a sign for people to show their faith in God and thereby overcome the consequences of the sins that they commit. Now, aside from this reference point, what else does the Old Testament provide to us? So I'm talking in this inappropriate conversation, as I did earlier in that article that I put on the website called Christianity 201, about what is the usefulness of the Old Testament. And to me, the Old Testament is very valuable in the sense of providing stories. It no longer provides a law, however, or Jesus died in vain. We are told that Jesus did away with the law. And people, I think, sometimes get confused by that. They say, well, we've got both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and therefore, because we have them both, and they both must be in full effect. No. God is telling a story here. And part of the story changed dramatically when the people were found in slavery in Egypt. And it changed dramatically again when Moses led them out of Egypt. And it changed dramatically again when they demanded to have judges and later kings. And it changed dramatically again the story changes as it moves on. 
it being confused about whether or not the law is still in effect because the Old Testament pages are still in our Bible is the same thing as being confused about why the Hebrew people are, are living in a promised land instead of back in Egypt. Well, they stopped living in Egypt. The Exodus tells that story. Now they're in the promised land. No longer in Egypt, in the promised land. Well, guess what? Paul tells us, no longer on the yoke and burden of the law. We're in the, the era of faith. We're looking to Jesus, not unlike the bronze snake being held aloft for people who had been bitten to be healed. Similar idea. But I'm not in favor of removing the Old Testament. There was a, an early heretic, and I think it's important as Christians that we understand not just the early saints, but also those early sinners, to get a grasp on what the church meant at the time and how it's evolved to where we are today. And around the year 140, a man named Marcion always has been my favorite heretic, as a matter of fact, because if you've got to have a favorite heretic, you might as well pick one, who provides an object lesson for this day and age. He decided that he couldn't reconcile the wrath and judgment of God of the Old Testament with the things that Jesus was preaching. He was unable to make the growth and the journey through the story. He, like so many Christians today, needed both of these things to have an equal validity, despite the fact that a story was being told. And so what he did was he cut off the entire Old Testament, got rid of it. That was a different God. That was the bad old angry God. And he kept only the parts of the New Testament that referred essentially to Jesus and the, the elimination of the law. So he kept an edited version of Luke's gospel, got rid of most of the other gospels, focused on the letters of Paul, edited those as well, got rid of some of the other letters, didn't have time for revelations, and produced his own little book. Now, two things are interesting here. First, you've got a version of the Bible that is coming together in the year 142 through the person of a heretic named Marcion. And because there was no accepted canon... That would come more than 500 years later, a final version of this is the Old and New Testament, more or less as we have it today. So it was really Marcion's decision to create his own set of approved scriptures that sort of led the early church to decide, yeah, I guess we can't just be circulating these letters and these gospels. We better put it all together in one sort of approved set of, well, into one book. So Marcion's where we got that from. But notice the mistake that Marcion made. He didn't recognize the value of the Old Testament. He either had to make a yay or nay decision about it. And it's the same kind of thing that I occasionally get pushed to by Christians who are in love with the law. As I describe them, they're more in love with the law than they are with the Lord because they don't believe the Lord accomplished anything on the cross. But having said that, I see value in the Old Testament because the Old Testament has the stories that we can use to interpret, frankly, a lot of the things that Paul and the gospel writers just casually mention. Oh, yeah, hey, remember when Moses put that snake on a pole? Well, you're not going to remember that if you don't have the book of Numbers. So, to me, ironically, having talked about how important the Old Testament is for its stories alone, and looking back at this passage in, in Numbers and also in John chapter 3, and what it tells us about how God works through faith, not a magic, superstitious, make the evil spirits go away. But if you've got something that you've stumbled into because of the consequences of terrible action, you're still going to face those consequences. But a, a more spiritual form of salvation comes through faith. I could go to the Old Testament and tell all those stories. Because I do love those stories. I value the Old Testament because, in large part because of its storytelling and how it's so essential to know the background 
But instead, I'm going to go to the New Testament and let one of the New Testament letter writers tell those stories. So I'm going to tell the stories through that particular form of storytelling in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 through chapter 12, verses 11, where primarily the focus is on example after example we've been given of the importance of faith. To have faith is to be sure of the things we hope for, to be certain of the things we cannot see. It was by their faith that the people of ancient times won God's approval. It was by faith that we understand that the universe was created by God's word, so that what can be seen was made out of what cannot be seen. It was faith that made Abel offer God a better sacrifice than Cain's. Through faith, he won God's approval as a righteous man, because God approved of his gifts. By means of his faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. It was faith that kept Enoch from dying. Instead, he was taken up to God, and nobody could find him, because God had taken him up. The scripture says that before Enoch was taken up, he had pleased God. No one can please God without faith. For whoever comes to God must have faith that God exists and rewards those who seek him. It was faith that made Noah hear God's warnings about the things in the future that he could not see. He obeyed God and built a boat in which he and his family were saved. As a result, the world was condemned, and Noah received from God the righteousness that comes by faith. It was faith that made Abraham obey when God called him to go out to a country which God had promised to give him. He left his own country without knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as a foreigner in the country that God had promised him. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who received the same promise from God. For Abraham was waiting for the city which God had designed and built, the city with permanent foundations. It was faith that made Abraham able to become a father, even though he was too old, and Sarah herself could not have children. He trusted God to keep his promise. Though Abraham was practically dead, from this one man came many descendants, as many descendants as there are stars in the sky, as many as the numberless grains of sand on the seashore. It was in faith that all these persons died. They did not receive the things that God had promised, but from a long way off they saw them and welcomed them, and admitted openly that they were foreigners and refugees on earth. Those who say such things make it clear that they are looking for a country of their own. They did not keep thinking about the country they had left. If they had, they would have had the chance to return. Instead, it was a better country they longed for, a heavenly country. And so God is not ashamed for them to call him their God, because he has prepared a city for them. It was faith that made Abraham offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice when God put Abraham to the test. Abraham was the one to whom God made the promise that he was ready to offer his only son as a sacrifice. God said to him, It is through Isaac that you will have the descendants I promised. Abraham reckoned that God was able to raise Isaac from death, and, so to speak, Abraham did receive Isaac back from death. It was faith that made Isaac promise blessings for the future to Jacob and Esau. It was faith that made Jacob bless each of the sons of Joseph just before he died. He leaned on the top of his walking stick and worshipped God. It was faith that made Joseph, when he was about to die, speak of the departure of the Israelites from Egypt and leave the instructions about what should be done with his body. It was faith that made the parents of Moses hide him for three months after he was born. They saw that he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid to disobey the king's order. 
It was faith that made Moses, when he had grown up, refuse to be called the son of the king's daughter. He preferred to suffer with God's people rather than to enjoy sin for a little while. He reckoned that to suffer scorn for the Messiah was far was worth far more than all the treasures of Egypt, for he kept his eyes on the future reward. It was faith that made Moses leave Egypt without being afraid of the king's anger. As though he saw the invisible God, he refused to turn back. It was faith that made him establish the Passover and order the blood to be sprinkled on the door so that the angel of death would not kill the firstborn sons of the Israelites. It was faith that made the Israelites able to cross the Red Sea as if on dry land. When the Egyptians tried to do it, the water swallowed them up. It was faith that made the walls of Jericho fall down after the Israelites had marched around them for seven days. It was faith that kept the prostitute Rahab from being killed with those who disobeyed God, for she gave the Israelite spies a friendly welcome. Should I go on? There isn't enough time for me to speak of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Through faith they thought they fought whole countries and won. They did what was right and received what God had promised. They shut the mouths of lions, put out fierce fires, escaped being killed by the sword. They were weak, but became strong. They were mighty in battle and defeated armies of foreigners. Through faith, women received the dead relatives raised back to life. Others, refusing to accept freedom, died under torture in order to be raised to a better life. Some were mocked and whipped. Others were put in chains and taken off to prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went around clothed in skins of sheep or goats, poor, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not good enough for them. They wandered like refugees in the deserts and hills, living in caves and holes in the ground. What a record all these have won by their faith. Yet they did not receive what God had promised, because God had decided on an even better place for us. His purpose was that only in company with us would they be made perfect. As for us, we have this large crowd of witnesses around us. So then let us rid ourselves of everything that gets in the way, and of the sin which holds on to us so tightly. Let us run with determination the race that lies before us. Let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, on whom our faith depends from beginning to end. He did not give up because of the cross. On the contrary, because of the joy that was waiting for him, he thought nothing of the disgrace of dying on the cross. He is now seated at the right side of God's throne. Think of what he went through, how he put up with so much hatred from sinners. So do not let yourselves become discouraged and give up. For in your struggle against sin, you have not yet had to resist to the point of being killed. Have you forgotten the encouraging words which God speaks to you as his children? My children, pay attention when the Lord corrects you, and don't be discouraged when he rebukes you, because the Lord corrects everyone he loves, and punishes everyone he accepts as a child. Endure what you suffer, as being a father's punishment. Your suffering shows that God is treating you as his children. Was there ever a child who was not punished by his father? If you are not punished, as all children are, it means you are not real children, but bastards. In the case of our human fathers, they punished us, and we respected them. How much more then should we submit to our spiritual father and live? Our human fathers punished us for a short time, as it seemed right to them. 
but our God does it for our own good so that we may share his holiness. When we are punished, it seems to us at the time as something to make us sad, not glad. Later, however, those who have been disciplined by such punishment reap the peaceful reward of a righteous life. One of my favorite verses in him is hidden inside this passage, particularly in the 12th chapter of Hebrews. This notion of turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I have never in my life gotten in front of a church group of any sort, whether on a weekend retreat or at a worship service, and spoken for more than two hours uninterrupted. And if I were called to do it, I think I would be quite intimidated. Luckily, most of this has been written down for me in you know centuries past in the words of the Bible. And I'm simply sharing the words of the Bible and what they mean to me. But it's still quite a bit to speak. The longest message I think I've ever given is probably 35 minutes, maybe a little more than 35 minutes. And one of the things that I do is I go in to speak a, a word of witness at that length and in that manner in front of a room full of maybe 40, 50 people, give or take, is think of the words of that hymn, turning my eyes toward Jesus and letting all of the things which would be intimidating for distracting be like the world going strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. The most important thing about Hebrew scriptures, though, isn't all these stories that I shared at some considerable length from the book of Hebrews. The most important thing is that the Hebrew scriptures existed to tell us who Christ is. They're there to, so that we would know the Messiah when we saw him. And we know this because Jesus tells us so. You often hear Christians talk about fulfilled prophecy. And a lot of those laws exist for no other reason than to paint that thumbnail sketch of who the Messiah would be so that when we saw him, we would know him. So I'm convinced that Jesus was not homosexual. He lived his life as if asexual, we're told. But I think that from an orientation perspective, he probably wasn't homosexual because we have laws now fulfilled sitting in the Old Testament telling us that's not what the Messiah is going to look like. More to the point, when you study the scriptures, looking for rules, looking for justifications, looking for loopholes, especially the Old Testament scriptures, you're failing completely. And I know this because Jesus himself has told us so. John chapter 5, verses 39 to 44. Jesus says this, this is him speaking. You study the scriptures because you think that in them you will find eternal life. And these very scriptures speak about me. Yet you are unwilling to come to me in order to have life. I am not looking for human praise. But I know what kind of people you are, and I know that you have no love for God in your hearts. I have come with my Father's authority, but you have not received me. When, however, someone comes with his own authority, you receive him. You like to receive praise from one another, but you do not try to win praise from the one who, is, who alone is God. How then can you believe me? This is Jesus frankly, rebuking not just the people of his time, but anyone to this very day who goes looking to the Old Testament for a set of rules that they can follow and thereby call themselves righteous and exalt themselves as having done God's will. 
When Jesus is telling us here in this passage, God's will is that you know me. You recognize me when you see me. And those passages you are looking for to find all the justifications you need to do and think whatever you want to do, do nothing more than tell you who I am. Yet you don't know me. On some level in the back of my mind, the music of Atomic Dog by George Clinton is running through my mind. Because this is Jesus, in New Testament speak, doing the equivalent of asking the question, what's my name? Back to Paul, though. Because Paul offers words of encouragement that are similar to the words that I shared earlier in Hebrews, in terms of this notion of running the race. Here's what Paul says in Philippians 3, verses 2 through 15. Watch out for those who do evil things, these dogs, those who insist on cutting the body. It is we, not they, who have received the true circumcision, for we worship God by means of his spirit and rejoice in our life in union with Christ Jesus. We do not put trust in external ceremonies. I could, of course, put my trust in such things. If any of you think you can trust in external ceremonies, I have even more reason to feel that way. I was circumcised when I was a week old. I am an Israelite by birth, of the tribe of Benjamin, a pure-blooded Hebrew. As far as keeping the Jewish law is concerned, I was a Pharisee, and I was so zealous that I persecuted the church. As far as a person can be righteous by obeying the commands of the law, I was without fault. But all those things that I might count as profit, I now reckon as loss, for Christ's sake. Not only these things, I reckon everything as complete loss, for the sake of what is so much more valuable, the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have thrown everything away. I consider all of it as mere garbage, so that I may gain Christ and be completely united with him. I no longer have a righteousness of my own, the kind that is gained by obeying the law. I now have the righteousness that is given through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is based on faith. And all I want is to know Christ and to experience the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, in the hope that I myself will be raised from death to life. I do not claim that I have already succeeded or that I have already become perfect. I keep striving to win the prize for which Christ Jesus has already won me to himself. Of course, my friends, I really do not think that I have already won it. The one thing I do, however is forget what is behind me and do my best to reach what is ahead. So I run straight toward the goal in order to win the prize, which is God's call through Christ Jesus to the life above. All who are spiritually mature should have the same attitude. But if some of you have a different attitude, God will make this clear to you. So who exactly is this Paul? To understand the question of who he is, and the authority that led so many of his books to be included in the New Testament. He is the author of more books in the New Testament than any other author. We first have to go back and meet him at a time when he wasn't called Paul at all. This man at the time was going by the name Saul. In Acts chapter 9, verses 1-31, through 31, the story is told this way. In the meantime, Saul kept up his violent threats of murder against the followers of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked for letters of introduction to the synagogues in Damascus so that if they should find any followers of the way of the Lord, he would be able to arrest them, both men and women, and bring them back to Jerusalem. Saul had already overseen 
the execution by stoning of people who were found to be, as this words it, followers of the way, Stephen being a noteworthy example. As Saul was coming near the city of Damascus, suddenly a light from the sky flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? he asked. I am Jesus, whom you persecute, the voice said. But get up and go into the city, where you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with Saul had stopped, not saying a word. They heard a voice, but could not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground and opened his eyes, but couldn't see a thing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. For three days he was not able to see, and during that time he did not eat or drink anything. There was a believer in Damascus named Ananias, different Ananias than the one cited earlier. He had a vision in which the Lord said to him, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, get ready and go to Straight Street, and at the house of Judas, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying, and in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come in and place his hands on him so that he might see again. Ananias answered, Lord, many people have told me about this man and all the terrible things he have done, he's done to your people in Jerusalem. And he has come to Damascus with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who worship you. The Lord said to him, Go, because I have chosen him to serve me, to make my name known to the Gentiles and kings and to the people of Israel. And I myself will show him all the things he must suffer for my sake. So Ananias went, entered the house where Saul was, and placed his hands on him. Brother Saul, he said, the Lord has sent me, Jesus himself, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here. He sent me so that you might see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once, something like fish scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he was able to see again. He stood up and was baptized, and after he had eaten, his strength came back. Saul stayed for a few days with the believers in Damascus. He went straight to the synagogues and began to preach that Jesus was the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed and asked, Isn't this the one who in Jerusalem was killing those who worshipped that man Jesus? And didn't he come here for the very purposes of arresting those people and taking them back to the chief priests? But Saul's preaching became even more powerful, and his proofs that Jesus was the Messiah were so convincing that the Jews who live in Damascus could not answer him. After many days had gone by, the Jews met together and made plans to kill Saul, but he was told of their plan. Day and night they watched the city gates in order to kill him, but one night Saul's followers took him and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Saul went to Jerusalem and tried to join the disciples, but they would not believe that he was a disciple, and all were afraid of him. Then Barnabas came to his help and took him to the apostles. He explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road, and that the Lord had spoken to him. He also told them how boldly Saul had preached in the name of Jesus in Damascus. And so Saul stayed with them, and he went all over Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He also talked and disputed with the Greek-speaking Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers found out about this, they took Saul to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. 
And so it was that the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had a time of peace. Through the help of the Holy Spirit, it was strengthened and grew in numbers as it lived in reverence for the Lord. In the Saul to Paul transition, conversion story in Acts, Jesus asks, why discriminate? How dare we persecute someone that Jesus has called? It was true of the Jews and the early Christians, and it may be true of today's Christians and people facing challenges and struggles that include evangelical discrimination. We have churches who refuse to let women share what the Lord is doing in their lives, refuse to letting them speak from the pulpit, despite the fact that in John chapter 4, the very first time that Jesus told somebody he was the Messiah and sent them off to share that good news with others, the person he chose as his evangelist was a woman. And don't get me started about the problem of the persecution of homosexuals and the assumption of some in the church that if you're gay, you can't possibly be a Christian. And that no matter what the Lord is doing in your life, and no matter how sincere your faith is, you simply cannot be believed because you're one of them. And the gospel that those folks preach is not a gospel of inness, it's a gospel of outness. Acts also presents something that I've heard described from the pulpit in just this past year as the Paul problem. How exactly do you go from being somebody who has been, say, harshly critical of, of what, what some people call the homosexual agenda? How do you turn around and minister hand-in-hand with those people who are both gay and Christian if you've been one of these anti-gay activists? If you've been somebody who's suggested that what we should do is torture people and, you know, call it anti-gay, post-gay therapy or whatever, but essentially torturing people. Behavior modification is the nicest term you could use for it. But if you're one of those folks in Exodus International, for example, who has since renounced the entire thing that you did as quote-unquote ministry for more than a decade and suddenly be expected to be taken seriously as somebody that can be trusted by gay Christians... After all the damage and harm you've done, you've got what I might call the Paul problem. Paul interacting both in Damascus and later in Jerusalem simply could not be trusted by the people that he as Saul had previously persecuted. This is a very important note for Christians. and It's something we've got to understand. And this was shared at the church that I'm planning to join. A little bit of Walk the Earth spoiler there. We'll be joining that church probably before the next episode of Walk the Earth gets released. By that pastor, who described the Paul problem, not in a dissimilar way from what I've described, and offered what he described as the Barnabas answers. I'm going to call it answers, plural, because it happens over and over again. Somebody inside the church needs to be the one standing up and saying, yes, there is such a thing as gay Christians. And also needs to be willing to stand up and say, yes, many of us, as Christians raised in the United States of America, have changed our attitude, have found that the love of Christ does supersede all of those laws, and we've made our own journey. We've had our own road to Damascus. Maybe we haven't been struck blind in order to be willing to hear what Jesus says. But many of us have had to endure an experience of sorts to be capable of hearing what Jesus says. The only way Paul has any influence on the church, the only way the Gentiles are reached through him at all, is because somebody named Barnabas within the church, who was legitimately afraid of this Paul, 
had to, through the Holy Spirit, overcome that fear, step in, and make a change. My son looked me in the eyes the other day and asked, Pa, when's this war going to be over? I answered him that one day his children and his children's children would look back and know that four warriors stood and fought and answered geeky trivia so that children everywhere could be free. The names of those heroes fresh on their minds, their tongues and their tattoos. Omar from Costa Rica, Roe from Washington, and of course their fearless leader, Commander Jason. I'm Kevin from Canada, and this is Atomic Trivia War 9000. ATW9K. I laugh because I have a note to myself here that says, pick back up in the book of Acts, talk about the story of Peter. I'm not going to do that. I've covered the story of Peter's conversion in a previous inappropriate conversation, quoting these same passages at some length. You'll find them in um, Inappropriate Conversations 131. The episode is called Christianity 301, Taking the Bible Seriously. And despite the fact that Rob Bell is the different drummer for that episode, the episode actually has a heck of a lot to do with Peter. In the interest of time, I won't repeat myself today. I also named the Apostle Peter as a different drummer, just a few weeks later, from that October episode over into the very end of December, or the very early part of January, and the episode 136, Converse versus Convert, uh, Peter was the different drummer that day. I won't repeat the passages I shared in that context, because I also talked about him a little bit at the top of the show, this notion of sharing our faith gently and with respect. You see, I've taken some criticism for being, well, critical of the church. But remember the ending of the section in Hebrews chapter 12, where it talks about um, correcting those we love, that God rebukes like a father those that are part of his family. <sighs> Does this mean that we ignore those we don't love? Well, not exactly. I look at it more as the work experience. The difference between a performance review or a performance correction and a termination. If I'm giving somebody a corrective review, they've done something wrong, I'm seeking to repair and replace the mistakes that they've made to get them back on the right track, that conversation could have a significant amount of length to it. It could take some time, and it's worth the time. Compare that to a termination. If they've already made enough mistakes and shown no willingness to improve, and I've gotten to the point of deciding that they need to be fired and replaced by somebody else, that conversation, being more serious isn't going to be at greater length. That conversation, being more serious, is going to be much, much shorter. You've failed, here's why, you're gone. No need to dwell on it. At that point, there's no longer hope of improvement or reconciliation. So, from that perspective, if I seem to spend a lot more time looking at the church and criticizing the church and calling on the church to improve, if I keep trying to make sure that the church makes the same turn of Saul to Paul, for example. It's not because I don't care. It's actually because I do. The worst thing of all, though, is this notion of being lukewarm. Revelations chapter 3, verses 14 to 22, puts it this way. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, This is the message from the Amen, the faithful and true witness, who is the origin of all that God has created. I know what you have done. I know that you are neither cold nor hot. How I wish you were either one or the other. But because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I am going to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich and well off, I have all I need. But you do not know how miserable and pitiful you are. 
you are poor, naked, and blind. I advise you then to buy gold from me, pure gold, in order to be rich. Buy also white clothing to dress yourself and cover up your shameful nakedness. Buy also some ointment and put it on your eyes so that you may see. I rebuke and punish all whom I love. Be in earnest then and turn from your sins. Listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and open the door, I will come into their house and eat with them and they will eat with me. To those who win the victory, I will give the right to sit beside me on my throne, just as I have been victorious and now sit by my father on his throne. If you have ears, then listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. What does Jesus mean by rebuking? Did Jesus, in fact, set the example of turning critically to the church? Absolutely. The Pharisees we are dealing with today need to hear the same thing Jesus shared with the Pharisees of his age. In Matthew chapter 23, it's recorded, starting with verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees are authorized interpreters of Moses' law. So you must obey and follow everything they tell you to do. Do not, however, imitate their actions, because they don't practice what they preach. They tie onto people's backs loads that are heavy and hard to carry, yet they aren't willing to lift even a finger to help them carry those loads. They do everything so that people will, will see them. Look at the straps of scripture verses on them, which they wear on their foreheads and arms. And notice how large they are. Notice also how long their tassels are on their cloaks. They love the best places at feasts and the reserved seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have people call them teacher. You must not be called teacher because you are all equal and have only one teacher. And you must not call anyone here on earth father because you have only the father in heaven. Nor should you call, be called leader because your one and only leader is the Messiah. The greatest among you must be your servant. Whoever makes himself great will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be made great. How terrible for you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You lock the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, but you yourselves don't go in, nor do you allow those who are trying to enter. How terrible for you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You sail the seas and cross whole countries to win one convert, and when you succeed, you make him twice as deserving of going to hell as you yourselves are. How terrible for you, blind guides, you teach. If someone swears by the temple, he isn't bound by his vow, but if he swears by the gold in the temple, he is bound. Blind fools, which is more important, the gold or the temple which makes the gold holy? You also teach, if someone swears by the altar, he isn't bound by his vow. But if he swears by the gift on the altar, he is bound. How blind you are. Which is more important, the gift or the altar which makes the gift holy? So then when a person swears by the altar, he is swearing by it and by all the gifts on it. And when he swears by the temple, he is swearing by it and by the God who lives there. And when someone swears by heaven, he is swearing by God's throne and by him who sits on it. How terrible for you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give to God one-tenth, even of the seasoning herbs, such as mint and dill and cumin, but you neglect to obey the really important teachings of the law, such as justice and mercy and honesty. These you should practice without neglecting the others. Blind guides, you strain a fly out of your drink, but you swallow a camel. How terrible for you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! 
You clean the outside of your cup and plate, while the inside is full of what you have gotten by violence and selfishness. Blind Pharisee, clean what is inside the cup first, then the outside will be clean too. How terrible for you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look fine on the outside, but are full of bones and decaying corpses on the inside. In the same way, on the outside, you appear good to everybody, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and sins. How terrible for you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You make fine tombs for the prophets and decorate the monuments of those who live good lives. And you claim that if you had lived during the time of your ancestors, you would have not have done what they did and killed the prophets. So you actually admit that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go on then, finish up what your ancestors started. You snakes, children of snakes, how do you expect to escape from being condemned to hell? And so I tell you that I will send you prophets and wise men and teachers. You will kill some of them, crucify others, and whip others in the synagogues and chase them from town to town. As a result, the punishment for the murder of all the innocent people will fall on you. From the murder of innocent Abel, to the murder of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you, indeed, the punishment for all these murders will fall on the people of this day. Jerusalem! Jerusalem! You kill the prophets and stone the messengers God has sent you. How many times I wanted to put you in my arms, to put my arms all around your people, just as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not let me. And so your temple will be abandoned and empty. From now on, I tell you, you will never see me again until you say, God bless him who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus, you know, often, you know, one of the criticisms you have of the sort of notion that the commandments call us to love is people who fear that this is a soft gospel. This is an easy gospel. It's too light. It's too easy. That, you know, Jesus had his moments of anger. Didn't he turn over money changers tables of the temples yes jesus directed his anger for those who try to turn a relationship with god into a profit making machine i'm looking at you trinity broadcasting network and other elements of christian tv i'm looking at you prosperity gospel teachers like td jakes and others what are you doing you're the money changers that jesus would have thrown out of the temple at the end of the court of a whip for crying out loud so yes there is an angry Jesus that appears in the Bible. His anger is directed toward those in positions of political power who wrap themselves up in self-righteous religiosity and have the audacity to heap the burden of inequity and injustice upon his people. Jesus would have a lot of things to say to the religious right, and if the religious right would like to read them in advance so as not to be stuck with the burden of hearing them from his very voice, they should read Matthew chapter 23. There's a lot written there that is, frankly, directed at them. So what about the rest of the story? It doesn't make sense to me to spend this much time sharing from the New Testament in particular and talking about the gospel message and not get all the way to the good news. Plus, this good news ends with a calling. My belief is that Jesus, through his crucifixion and his death on the cross and later resurrection, fulfilled all the law. What does Jesus have to say about it? And how did Jesus reveal himself? I'm going to choose to look at Matthew chapter 28, because Luke chapter 24 is a section that I shared 
just a few episodes ago in the uh, Inappropriate Conversation show called The Idea of Christ, number 146. Instead, here's Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. After the Sabbath, as Sunday morning was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake. An angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled away the stone, and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid that they trembled and became like dead men. The angel spoke to the women. You must not be afraid, he said. I know you were looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has been raised, just as he said. Come here and see the place where he was lying. Go quickly now and tell his disciples he has been raised from death, and now he is going to Galilee ahead of you. There you will see him. Remember what I have told you. So they left the tomb in a hurry, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them and said, Peace be with you. They came up to him, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Do not be afraid, Jesus said to them. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While the women went on their way, some of the soldiers guarding the tomb went back to the city and told the chief priests everything that had happened. The chief priests met with the elders and made their plan. They gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say that his disciples came during the night and stole his body while you were asleep. And if the governor should hear of this, we will convince him that you are innocent and you will have nothing to worry about. The guards took the money and did what they were told to do. And so that is the report that spread around by the Jews to this very day. The eleven disciples went to the hill in Galilee, where Jesus had told them to go. When he saw them, they worshipped him, even though some of them doubted. Jesus drew near and said to them, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Go then to all peoples everywhere and make them my disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And I will be with you always, to the end of the age. Go then. Doesn't it seem that many Christians today are unwilling to go anywhere? You set up a shingle, you put your meeting times for worship, you unlock the doors for most people but not all, and you expect them to show up. But what Jesus told his disciples to do, what he told his church to do, was not to sit and wait but to go and do. The last passage I'll share in this long, Bible-filled, inappropriate conversations episode is just a reminder of who we're supposed to go see. Because again, even if I were to convince some churches to leave their church walls and to go out and interact with other people, my guess is that there are some corners of society they wouldn't go into. Corners of society where they have decided that those people are unworthy. They fall outside of, say, planks in the Republican Party's platform, and therefore they are not the kind of people we want to be sharing this important, powerful piece of information with. It raises the question, the obvious question, about Jesus and sinners. There are numerous examples across all the Gospels, so many that there's no way it would make sense for me to try to outline them all. I hope I've demonstrated to anybody who's not familiar with the Bible that passage after passage after passage of parallels can be found. I would have no trouble rattling off five or six examples of Jesus interacting with sinners, being criticized for it, and having an answer to his critics. Just like I had more than one example of Jesus declaring that the Roman centurion had more faith than everybody in Israel. 
this is not unusual for the Bible, where you have, for one thing, four Gospels that present eyewitness accounts. No, I'm going to answer the question with just one. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Jesus went back again to the shore of Lake Galilee. A crowd came to him, and he started teaching them. As he walked along, he saw a tax collector, Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting in his office. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Levi got up and followed him. Later on, Jesus was having a meal in Levi's house. A large number of tax collectors and other outcasts following Jesus, and many of them joined him and his disciples at the table. Some teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw that Jesus was eating with these outcasts and tax collectors, so they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with such people? Jesus heard them and answered, People who are well do not need a doctor, but only those who are sick. I have come not to call respectable people, but outcasts. The story of the Good Samaritan comes to mind. Who are our neighbors, and how are we supposed to love them? Or, the question I've asked churches, as I've visited churches for the Walk the Earth podcast, is, which neighbors in your congregation am I not allowed to love? I want to love my neighbor as I love myself. That includes people that some churches simply don't have time for. So the last word we hear in Matthew's Gospel is essentially a go and do likewise, much like the ending to the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it raises the question, who should go and do likewise? I mentioned earlier, we can't trust this to someone who's going to act on our behalf, a deacon, an elder, a pastor, a priest. No. Ordinary people is who Jesus is telling to go and do likewise. The voice of any believer will suffice. And my inspiration for picking the different drummer this week comes right from this moment. Regular, everyday Christian people coming to terms with the idea that they don't just get to hide behind the prejudice of Christian religious tradition and leave out some neighbors trusting that the Lord will forgive them because the pastor, the priest, the Pope told them so. Our different drummer is Nicole Villacrez. You know, I've had conversations on Facebook with, you know, my Christian uncle who doesn't understand where I'm coming from with this, you know, and, you know, we're, we're cordial. And <laughs> You're we're, so much more accepting than I am. <laughs> oh, well, these are my people, you know, the, I know, the, I know. and what I love is Pride 48 is my people too. So I can, I can love my groups of people, you know, and understand where they're, where they're coming from and know mm -hmm. that when I'm with this, when I'm with a Christian who believes the way I used to believe, you know, I have to be patient with them and I have to we share my point of view. You, Go, what? We don't hold that against you, Nicole. You've evolved. You're so cute. <laughs> well, you know, we all have to come from somewhere, right? Everybody I mean, has to come to things in their own time. You can't force anything on anyone. You can't force someone to believe something that they either choose not to or just don't. Right. You can't force someone to change a belief system they have. You know, everyone has to come to everything in your own time. And you've just come to it faster than some others. Sure. It took and a some while, people though. will never get to that point. Well, I'm really, you know, you know I got to say thank you to everybody and the the folks I met at Pride 48 two years ago who were just so kind to me and so accepting of me as a Christian. 
you know, and non-judgmental. And it, it was those kinds of attitudes and your attitude and TJ's attitude and the divine Miss L's attitudes, you know, that made me go, mm, I got to get back to the book. Me and the book got to get together and talk about mm-hmm. some of this because it doesn't, it doesn't work with the Holy Spirit inside of me. The Holy yes. Spirit is ringing true in people who I've been taught don't have any truth. It's like, oh, wow. So I'm responsible before God for what I believe. I don't get to point to a pastor or to a book and say, well, they told me, you know, no, I am responsible for my beliefs before God. Small town quirks and coolness, yeah. We're sending you a warm greeting from nowhere. Two best friends with a lot to say about small town life in the USA. Christina and Nicole got gossip to share, and they're sending every one of you greetings from I'm hopeful that Nicole Villacrez will be a familiar name, partly because I hope that there's something of a community of Inappropriate Conversations listeners who may be familiar not just with my show, but also with Greetings from Nowhere, either having encountered me through them or them through me. Nicole is one of the hosts of Greetings from Nowhere, along with Christina and sometimes TJ. And so I encountered Nicole for the first time through that show, but her voice has been heard a couple of other times on Inappropriate Conversations. About a year ago, I put out a show called Proud to Know You, talking about my plans, still my plans, next year to attend a Pride 48 event in Las Vegas and participate in Pride, uh, Gay Pride as an event. Having come to the realization, and in part coming through that, to that realization through my internet friendship with Nicole, that I can tell myself and other people that I have credentials to walk in both of these groups. I can speak to the most arch-conservative of conservative congregations as a Bible-believing Christian who shares the faith with them. I also can go and speak to people in a pride event as not Greg the Christian showing up, but as Greg the person who cares about them as people. But that is only true if I actually go to both places. Well, I've done prison ministry and other Christian outreach events with people that I now frankly, have concerns about. I think that if I were to introduce some of those friends to some of my friends who are part of the Pride 48 community, it might not go well. I can't trust my Christian friends not to be decidedly unchristian, I guess, is where I would put it. In fact, I'm more confident in my friends who are part of the Pride 48 community to be kind and considerate of the people who actually should be demonstrating those values. Well, one person who I think above all has demonstrated those credentials in both groups to me, who's led the way, so to speak, is Nicole. She has shown that she can be both part of her Christian family, including real live family members who are no more on board with her political perspective than my family is with me, and with people inside Pride 48. She's been referred to recently as the moral compass of that community, not necessarily central to who they are as a group, but somebody who provides not only a Christian perspective whenever it's called upon, but somebody who provides a Christian perspective that understands what Jesus did, what it meant, 
and what he taught. An amazing thing happens when you come to terms with a couple of ideas. One of them is, it is possible to be gay and Christian, just like it's possible to be anything else in Christian. There was a time in our country where people doubted that you could be African-American and Christian, just to put that out there. So I get a lot of criticism whenever I make a connection between gay rights and the rights of, of other minority groups, but this isn't even trying to make that connection. It's just making a sheer statement of fact that there was a time when people believed that other people, based on their race, had no souls. And there are probably people in the church today who, people, who believe that people, because of their sexual orientation, either have no souls or clearly have lost them. Nicole provides a different perspective for both groups, being available for people. When I reached out to her earlier this year to say, the church I'm attending may be getting closer to wanting to, to work an adult Sunday school curriculum related to some of the questions about homosexuality and Christianity. Did she have resources? She wasn't the only person I reached out to, but she was the first person to speak. And her resources were absolutely the best. She's somebody who's walked this walk, who's gone on this journey, and has found a way to share the benefits of what she's learned, both within the gay community, which is why this moral compass conversation came up around Pride 48 events, but also with the Christian community. Maybe not as directly as you might imagine, because that's a difficult nut to crack. That's a place where I think more you often get more calls for credentials there than you'd expect when you compare the early church and, and the model that was set there. But certainly for me, she's been an asset, she's been a resource, she's been an inspiration. And I know that she has said from time to time the same thing back about me, and I deeply appreciate that. In fact, here's probably the best way of describing the mutual admiration is from her blog at ensby.com, nsv.com. A July post called Something's Wonderful includes this paragraph. I also received a request from a fellow podcaster to be part of his podcast in a way that is incredibly honoring to me. Full of wonder. I make an exception based on the public figure standard on Different Drummer. I don't feel any need or necessarily any desire to reach out to people who I know only through some level of celebrity to tell them they're going to be a different drummer and to ask them if they're comfortable with their name being called out publicly. They're already public figures. It's kind of irrelevant. But podcasting is a different animal. On the one hand, you can, you can sort of make a claim that, hey, if you're out there as a podcaster, you're out in the public. But it isn't the same level of celebrity, and it isn't the same type of commitment. For one thing, there's not much commerce in it. Most people who do podcasting are not making a living doing podcasting. So I reached out to her and said, yeah, I'm very interested in, in naming you as a different drummer, and specifically for episode 150, because it's going to have so much scripture in it that it only makes sense for me to pick somebody who I think shares my love for the Lord and for the scriptures in much the same way, and it would be so much better if it was somebody that I actually knew. That notion of an everyday believer being the ones who go and share the good news. The biggest question I ask is whether I should identify the person by their whole name. A year ago in that Proud to Know You episode, I named Janet from Christians Tired of Being Misrepresented as a different drummer, and she was rightfully hesitant about that because of harassment that she had received due to just having a slightly different perspective on Christianity than what the religious right holds up to be true. Here is Nicole's answer. You can call me by my full name. I think it is part of how the Lord is calling me to be. I'll never forget Christina telling me of a dream she had where she was sitting on a park bench talking with the angel Gabriel. I kid you not. And Gabriel told her, 
we just have to get Nicole out there. And Christina's answer was like, I know, right? There was more to it, but I remember really being hit on the head with the idea that God actually wanted me to be seen. That for some reason, the things I had to say mattered. I think I'm doing right by him. I'm working on it. Well, in in that spirit, one thing I can do for Nicole is name her a different drummer and say, I don't think there's someone better on this issue of pulling Christ out of the closet of Christian homophobia than somebody who has done the work, done the praying, done the research, done the interacting, asked the questions, shared the love, been patient with those who are unloving, accepted willingly the love of those that she's gotten in return, because some of the people that she's interacted with online are not at all used to having Christians being even remotely kind, much less loving. She's done the work. She deserves the credit, both in the sense of being an everyday believer, not somebody who's the next St. Augustine, for example, but also in the sense of somebody who I find to be a person who has led the way. When I hit this moment in my walk of finding Greetings from Nowhere as a podcast, I had mentally gotten to the place of understanding what the Bible said and what Jesus wanted me to do in relation to gay people of all sorts, gay Christians, but also gay people who are so far away from Christianity it's not even a conversation point, and allies who are, perhaps because of the way the church has acted, so far away from Christianity that it's a non-starter. But that moment of interaction was, to me, it was all intellectual. It was all head. Getting that to move fully and completely from a head knowledge to a heart knowledge, it required the leadership of others. It required an example that I'm not sure I had prior to listening to some of the folks in the Pride 48 community, in particular, that community's moral compass, Nicole Villacrez. I realize with the length of this show, it seems somewhat wrong and almost dismissive to have such a relatively short, different drummer segment But remember, I started the show with the too-long-didn't-read version of where my heart is on what the Bible says we're supposed to do about, you know, people that we encounter in our life who may not be on what some folks call the right path. And I shared that in the first 10 or 15 minutes to make it easy for people who didn't want to hear more than two hours of Scripture. Hopefully, the different drummer segment, you know, in the context of that too-long-didn't-read intro, is appropriately sized and appropriately shaped. Normally, this is the place where I'd tell you that if, you have, if you'd like to participate in this conversation, I can be reached at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com, and that there will be uh, show notes, probably a long list of Bible verses for this episode, on the website at inappropriateconversations.org, with comments enabled there. Again, I don't usually end these inappropriate conversations shows with a prayer, but this one feels appropriate just based on the mix of religion versus politics and pop culture that this incredibly long 150th episode represents. So if, and as you're led, please join me in prayer. Lord, I sit here amazed that I am at 150 episodes. You know, Lord, from my prayer life, that there have been times that I've worried about being somewhat manic, a little bipolar, in the sense that you can look at that from the perspective of Projects started but never come to fruition, 
or things that are up and running for a while but fade away quickly. I don't always see things through. Lord, I've got friends that I can thank and credit for perseverance in this area, listeners in particular, and you, Lord. I don't know that I get to 150 on my own steam. It's not that I didn't think I had more than 150 things to say. It's just I didn't know that I'd have the, the willpower to say them. Lord, I hope that the words that I've shared today, many of them your words, Lord Jesus, have been shared in love and have come from a place of love. Because as Paul has said, and as you have said, without love, there really isn't much point in presuming to lead anyone anywhere. In your holy name we pray. Amen.